Let's open up our books to page 73, sonnet 141, and listen up. And faith, I do not love thee with mine eyes, for damn thee a thousand errors note. But tis my heart that loves what they despise, who in despite of you is pleased to dope. Now, I know Shakespeare's a dead white guy, but he knows his shit, so we can overlook that. I want you all to write your own version of this sonnet. Oh. Yes, miss, I have an opinion about everything. Do you want this in iambic pentameter? Hello, and welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where we revisit the pop culture of the 80s and 90s to see whether it makes us cringe a lot or just a little bit. <laughs> I'm Chris, your podcast host, most likely to successfully sneak back into high school pretending to be 17 for several months, get paid for it, and turn it into a savvy career move. <laughs> and I'm Seth, the co-host who's the coleslaw king of the world. And I'm Becky, the podcast host, most likely to wonder why Julia Stiles has yet to star in a teen movie adaptation of Shakespeare's Coriolanus. <laughs> that didn't happen? <laughs> Not yet. She's still around. Coriolanus is always fresh material to bring back. (laughs) It's the only Shakespeare with a butt reference. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Becky. Chris. Seth. Becky. (laughs) I don't know if you guys have plans already. Probably already podcasting with someone else. But (laughs) if you aren't, you know, I was thinking maybe like we could all, you know, just go to podcast together as you know, just as friends. When I feel like a third wheel, though, like I always do. Yes, that's part of the chemistry of our podcast. And if I come, what am I going to wear? I bought you this dress. <gasps> it's just my size. Wait, how did you know my size? Chris, I bet you can't get Seth to go to the prom with you and turn him into prom queen. You're on. <laughs> Today, we are wearing our corsages and clamping our sweaty palms together in honor of three cherished teen comedies that all feature climactic moments at the prom. Just like real life. Because if your prom didn't have a climactic moment, you might as well kill yourself. And if you didn't have a prom, you were never alive. True. These films are She's All That, Never Been Kissed, and Ten Things I Hate About You, starring three of the world's ugliest and most off-putting actresses, (laughs) Rachel Lee Cook, Julia Stiles, and Drew Barrymore. Oh, sorry. I know. I'm sorry to even conjure up their faces in your mind. In addition to being prom-centric, all three find inspiration in classic literature. All three were released less than three months apart in 1999, and all three taught the youth of America that manipulation and deceit are the surest path to true love. And all three have Oscar winners in them. They all three won Oscars? Is that what you're saying? Best picture? <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't don't get me wrong at all. Wait, 1999. That was the year that all three of them won Best Picture simultaneously. <laughs> the first oh, yeah. ever three-way Academy Award time. I do remember Freddie Prinze Jr.'s, like, amazing Oscar speech. That was really great. He did push-ups, right? Mm-hmm. No, wait, that was someone else. <laughs> that was Martin Scorsese. Now, I want to talk about how... <laughs> what the hell are you doing here? I was invited. Really? Isn't your dad my pool man? I really wouldn't know. Oopsie! You really should be more careful with silk. Thank you. Excuse me? Thank you. For a minute there, I forgot why I avoided places like this and people like you. Avoided us? Honey, look around you. To everyone here who matters, you're vapor. You're spam. A waste of perfectly good yearbook space. Nothing's going to change that. 
So we are at the point in the podcast where it's possible to forget what we've talked about before. <laughs> because as I was like preparing for this podcast, I was like, oh, it would be really fun if we all shared our prom stories. Because that's what you would do on the prom episode. So... Yeah, we already talked about that on the uh, <laughs> episode number eight, Molly Ringwald episode of the podcast. Yeah, and I feel like this is very much spiritually picking up the baton from the 80s teen movies. Exactly, yes. I think it's very important that we have that foundation now t- to journey into these 90s teen movies. So we've shared enough stories on the podcast that I think our listeners probably know what kind of people we were in high school. <laughs> the coolest. We were not all that. We were unlikely to be kissed, and there were way more than 10 things to hate about us. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's already 10 things I hate about you in high school, and I didn't even know you then. But you've shared enough of them on the podcast that I'd be like, oh, that girl. Oh, God. I don't know. I feel like my issues are very strong, but limited in number. <laughs> so I have a more esoteric question to ask us to open this episode, which uh, does relate back to how I felt about watching these movies. Growing up, did you ever see yourself reflected in teen characters, not necessarily in these movies or teen movies in general, but just in teen characters? When was the first time that you watched a movie and thought, that's me, or did that not even happen at all? I never saw any of these movies that we're going to talk about today while I was in high school. Actually, not until either a year ago or a few days ago. Pretty much all the big teen movies in 1999 I didn't watch. I was too busy watching Being John Malkovich and Magnolia and American Beauty, which might kind of count as a mm-hmm. as a teen movie, and Eyes Wide Shut in 1999 because I think I didn't see myself in any of those movies. Teen movies really I didn't ever see myself in any of them, which I think was my big problem at the time with them, where I kind of just knew they're not for me because just on the trailers alone, none of them look like me or my friends or the high schools didn't feel like high school. I have to say, though, one of the first movies that I think did capture that was Election in 1999, which (laughs) I think was the only teen movie that year that I saw. And I remember just being so surprised that so many of the people in that movie looked like people I went to high school with and, you know, just talked like teenagers and probably were teenagers at the time or maybe like 18 year olds that looked young. And I think that's when I first like really fell in love with Alexander Payne and his casting director, whoever he or she is, because that's the thing in a lot of his movies is that they actually feel like they're real people and look like real people. And in election, um, they really did talk and act like real teenagers. And I can't think of any other movie before that, where I remember being impressed by the casting. What about you, Seth? Yeah, pretty much every single word of what Becky just said. Cool. So we'll just replay that again. <laughs> yep. Yeah, just dub do, do in. Do lower, though. Lower voice. Yeah, I'll pitch, I'll pitch your voice a couple octaves down. I saw none of these movies at the time that they came out or on video afterward. I know a lot of my friends did, both in elementary school and in high school, but I was just never really into them. I never saw myself really reflected in them. I mean, I didn't so much see myself reflected in 80s movies either, but I at least felt like there was kind of more humor. I I don't know. I just found them more interesting and the characters more interesting. But still, I didn't really see these movies until basically a few weeks ago. In Election and seeing other movies like Magnolia and stuff, I started to see the kind of cinema that I actually related to. That was the kind of movie that made that connection for me, rather than movies with like actual teen characters or quote-unquote teen movies. 
Going into this podcast, I already knew that I was the biggest fan of the teen era of, I guess, like the late 90s. I watched the WB and a lot of those shows. I saw all these movies and I watched TRL. But the like bubblegum thing was never really quite my thing. So even though I would like watch Dawson's Creek, I think it was at least half ironically, even at the time, like I was never like, oh my God, I'm so emotionally invested. I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, they're doing this, you know, back and forth romance again and it was more like enjoying it in a campy way you know i obviously was a big fan of buffy but even then i wasn't like oh that's me (laughs) me with the stake killing that vampire so yeah i was gonna say too that i just didn't recognize myself in any of the pop culture really that came out in the late 90s and i kind of like seth was just saying i didn't start finding characters that i identified with until college and then i became that obnoxious person who's like oh my god everything is like so about me and like what weird things like the lyrics from evita <laughs> oh you don't mean like college age movies you just mean in general you found things that you could relate to actually i think the the thing is is that i i actually like got out of high school because in high school i didn't have any of those like teen experiences like i uh, wasn't allowed to go to parties like i just didn't relate to any of that And once I finally got into college, I started, like, kind of being in charge of my own actions and, like, actually becoming my own person. And that's when I started, like, seeing, like, oh, like, this is the kind of person that I'm like, or that character I relate to. Before, I always kind of felt like I wasn't having the right teen experience, but also wasn't connecting to the one that I saw represented. Yeah, I did debate all throughout high school. So it's not even just that I felt different from the characters I saw on screen. Like, my life consisted of totally different activities. Like, I never went to big blowout house parties, even though I grew up in New Orleans. Me neither. Those, like, big blowout house parties are such a formal element of all these teen movies that, like, again, I just didn't really connect with that, like, central experience that goes through all of these stories. I honestly have no idea if that actually... exists in real life like i i know people have parties but i don't think they ever look like they do in the movies i I, went to literally one and witnessed the parents of one of the people i went to high school with getting lifted up for a keg stand by their 12 year old that was a window onto new orleans drinking culture for everyone out there at least the parents were home yeah exactly (laughs) there was some good adult supervision then that sounds like a cool mom (laughs) <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I feel like I feel like I had that experience just that one time and I was like, oh, OK, that's enough. I bet you those parties happen, but they're like more like once in a blue moon or they're more rural where there's really nothing else to do, like even more rural than suburb suburban life. Oh, but I but I'm sure they're also like for rich people, you know, like I bet like rich kids do that kind of thing. Yeah, I just mean that probably happens maybe once a school year maybe twice versus like every weekend is Mm -hmm. like this crazy party. If anything, you probably have like a gathering with maybe like 10 friends and there's no music blaring and it's just like you're you're watching eyes wide shut (laughs) and you're (laughs) you're eating Sparrow (laughs) and your parents aren't home. And like, you're just like drinking some beers that you found or something that you're an older sibling. You know what I mean? It's like not that big of a deal. That's probably more typical. Yeah. Yeah, I do want to say that um, I just, while we were talking, after election, I don't think 
anything else really represented how my life was in high school or I think how high school is in general until Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, we rewatched uh, the Molly Ringwald movies and found them pretty problematic back in episode eight. And she just came out with a piece in The New Yorker revisiting those movies in the era of Me Too that was really interesting and just like kind of, kind of calling out the same sort of problems that we had with the movie and a lot of people have had with the movie where they're kind of condoning date rape and... Sexual assault in The Breakfast Club? Yeah. Or at least, like, really creepy underwear shots? (laughs) Yeah, and just the kind of, like, girls needing to throw themselves at guys and not being okay without a guy. So I think that's a good jumping-off point to look into the 90s, because that's what teen culture was coming from. So the first half of the 90s was kind of dominated more by, like, sardonic ironic MTV grunge aesthetic. Movies like Empire Records and Reality Bites, and I don't even know if those were exactly teen movies, but they were young people movies. And I think that's what like the cool kids were watching back then. TV had My So-Called Life, so that was kind of like in that aesthetic too. It was all very Gen X, and even 90210 was a little less heightened than some of the later 90s. And then there was like this bubblegum teen explosion in music with Britney and the Backstreet Boys on TV with um, Dawson's Creek and other shows on the WB and in movies like the ones we're talking about today. And pretty much all of this stuff was like this super heightened vision of high school. Like it was like really sexy and everyone looked pretty adult. And it was it was very like California. Like everyone was wearing like tank tops and... Bare midriffs. Yeah, it was definitely not like the average high school experience in pretty much any of this stuff. So for the movies we're talking about today, I thought you could trace them back to basically two movies from the mid-90s, which are Clueless and Romeo and Juliet. Oh, definitely Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) Yeah, so Clueless was based on a classic novel, Jane Austen's Emma, and Alicia Silverstone was a Beverly Hills teenager who was, she was very heightened, you know, but she, that was the point of the movie is that, like, she was this kind of Beverly Hills airhead who, I mean, she had a little bit more depth to her, but, like, the joke of the movie is that she was so out of touch and, like, kind of rich and, like, it was supposed to be a contrast to normal high school. (laughs) But, like, that kind of image pervaded into, like, the later teen movie culture, I think. And then Romeo and Juliet kind of proved that Shakespeare could be, like, cool and sexy for, like, 90s teens. And kind of made like Shakespeare a thing again. And so like a lot of these later movies took inspiration from Shakespeare and other like classic literature in very (laughs) interesting ways. I think that's really interesting. The point you brought up about Clueless, um, that that movie is kind of making fun of very rich people in Beverly Hills. So it's making fun of Los Angeles people. Mm-hmm. But all these other high school movies that took place all around the country were like, okay, that's what high school looks like now. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think, like, Chris, what you're hinting at is very much the case where, like, what was initially posed as satire, I think, kind of literally defines in, in an earnest and serious way the character tropes of, like, all of these teen movies that we're going to discuss. Yeah, they were like, oh, they like Clueless, so we'll do that. But I I don't know how much thought they gave to, like, why Clueless worked. (laughs) Clueless is great. This is not the Clueless podcast. (laughs) Spoiler, Clueless holds up. (laughs) Clueless was a huge hit. Scream was a huge hit. Buffy was a huge hit. And they all featured these super articulate teenagers, mostly upper middle class. And that kind of leads us into uh, 1999, where we had 
a whole lot of teenagers. Like more than any other year, the the amount of teen movies. Like I feel like 1999 is known as like the teen movie year. Yeah, it was like John Hughes on steroids. So the actual teen movies that came out in 1999 were American Pie, Varsity Blues, Drive Me Crazy, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, Idle Hands, Jawbreaker, and Cruel Intentions. Plus the three movies that we're talking about today. Plus, uh, Can Hardly Wait came out in 1998, but mm-hmm. close enough. Um, and Election kind of counts, and I feel like American Beauty kind of counts, too, as like a And when movie. did Rushmore come out? Oh, I don't... 98. 98? Yeah. yeah. So there was a big teen thing, but yeah. Boom market in the teens! There were, yeah, there were a lot of, like, fringy, like, The Virgin, Suicides, and But I'm a Cheerleader... Um, oh, that's true. Superstar, Detroit Rock City. Like, they had, like, teen elements to them, but those main teen movies, there were still even just a lot of those. I was looking at that list, like, trying to be like, let's do all the teen movies from 99. And then I was like, <laughs> Good God, well, no. let's be here all day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I would do it, but I think I would get some flack. So let's start with our first movie, She's All That, which was released on January 29th, 1999. It's made for a budget of $10 million. Its opening weekend was $16.1 million, and its domestic gross was $63.4 million, with a worldwide gross of over $100 million, just over. So it was a pretty big hit. The Taylor Vaughn you just described is an illusion, a myth. You strip away all that attitude and makeup, and basically all you have is a C-minus GPA with a wonder bra. I give it up. Take, uh, take her, for example. Short, decent rack, kind of a Chelsea Clinton thing going on. But, given the right look, the right boyfriend, bam. In six weeks, she's the one being crowned prom queen. And you're serious. That's a heart attack. Yeah, clearly delusional. But how about a chance to prove me wrong? Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Ding, ding, ding. You guys said that you didn't see this movie when it came out. Is that correct? No, I didn't see it until like two weeks ago. What was your impression of the movie having not seen it? I felt like it was just not a movie for me. I could tell from the trailer and the basic plot. I'm like, that's that's not something that I'm going to get anything out of. So right. you're you're not all that. <laughs> um, no, she considers I'm not. <laughs> herself more this than that. No, I think I could like. 1999, I was 16. I think I was old enough to be like, I'm an eyes wide shut <laughs> person, not a she's all that person. Where's the teen movie where it's like, I'm all shut. Oh, there's the eyes wide shut girl over there. Delio. Who's just topless, like, with a mask on. Jennifer Love Hewitt is Fidelio. What about you, Seth? I would watch, like, VH1. I wouldn't watch MTV, TRL, any of that kind of thing. So I'm sure I saw all the trailers for that shit. The only Freddie Prince vehicle I remember seeing was he's in I Know What You Did Last Summer. He certainly is. And I saw and loved that. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. If you cast your memory back, I did not see Scream. And yet I saw I Know What You Did Last Summer (laughs) in theaters. I I contain multitudes. What can I say? We are definitely doing that episode. Oh, we're going to have to. I know I had friends who liked She's All That when it came out. But yeah, I, I never watched him. Did you see it in theaters? Not in theaters. I don't think I did. I mean... Yeah, it was marketed as kind of a sappy teen rom-com, so that didn't really appeal to me. The song Kiss Me 
by Sixpence, None the Richer, was already like tied to this movie, the success, but it was constantly played, and I did not like that song, and it only got worse it the was, more it was played. It was inescapable. Like, the Spice Girls, that fucking song, Kiss Me, was inescapable in the late 90s. Well, kiss me. Yeah, it's still in my head. I will not. Even that song kind of turned me off from seeing this movie and kind of shaped the way that I both like thought about the movie before I saw it. And then I know I saw it probably on video, like as soon as it came out, just because I watch all these movies. And yeah, like I, I watched it. I was like, that was fine. But like, I mostly remember that song and like gushy prom dancing, moony eyed Rachel Lee Cook. So I didn't have a particularly fond memory of this movie. Wasn't that Paula Cole song the Dawson's Creek theme? Oh my, yes. Yeah, again, that song and its inescapability was uh, also part of the reason I never watched shows like that. That's fair, because I watched Dawson's Creek, but I kind of, like, got irritated every time. I don't want to wait! <laughs> I, I did want to wait. <laughs> I did. For the song to be over. That was a bit of a mash. <laughs> I, I think I would fast-forward through it when I could. The reviews for She's All That were mixed... Uh, Salon's Mary Elizabeth Williams gave it a positive review and said, What really saves She's All That from being just another why good heavens, you're beautiful piece of piffle, however, is the way its lesser elements sparkle. The romantic comedy may be predictable, but director Iskov's over-the-top parody of faux celebrity by way of Lillard's gleefully preening, partying, getting sensitive for the camera X real-worlder is a hoot. On the negative side, the Portland Oregonian's Sean Levy said... It's written almost without wit or romance, it's populated by bland actors, and it's photographed as if through a jello mold. <laughs> if this is adolescence, then senility can't come soon enough. <laughs> the movie was directed by Robert Iskov, who later went on to direct such cinema classics as From Justin to Kelly. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> so he got, he got his choreography training in with this movie, I guess. Yeah. Does the such as imply that there are other credits? <laughs> <laughs> no. Fair that was the biggest one. <laughs> the screenplay is credited to R. Lee Fleming Jr., who went on to write another teen comedy called Get Over It in 2001. What literary classic was that based off of? I probably have that <laughs> in a later note. I don't remember off the top of my head. Was it A Midsummer Night's Dream? No, actually, I think it's not that one. And then he had an unproduced script called Watch Out For It. <laughs> <laughs> and that was based on the Iliad. <laughs> and the script was also written by M. Night Shyamalan. Twist. <laughs> he was a teen comedy writer the whole time. Uh, twist because this was the same year The Sixth Sense came out. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, he did this what? first. I think that's hilarious that his like breakthrough year where he was like nominated for like best picture and director and like all that's that. <laughs> he was He was not nominated for it. She saw that actually. <laughs> He did not get a screenwriting credit, but he did a polish that apparently was a little bit more than a polish, and actually, like, a lot of the dialogue and everything is his. So, <laughs> is this movie all that, or is it <laughs> only a little bit of that? I'll go first. <laughs> Please do, <you>, Becky! <laughs> so, I love a movie called Not Another Teen Movie. It came out in 2001, and even though I didn't see all these teen movies, I, like, got the gist of them. <laughs> in 1999 so that when i saw this movie i think it was like just a free movie right off campus at usc one of those free movie passes i believe i was there with you yeah which is why i saw it 
And I thought it was one of the, one of the funniest like parody movies that I've ever seen. Granted, I don't see that many because <laughs> it's usually not my thing, but I thought it was hilarious. And what I did not know was that the basis of that movie is She's All That. <laughs> the whole yes. basic plot, it's almost 60% a She's All That parody with other movies sprinkled in. Right. So I hadn't seen She's All That until very recently. And it was almost like when I grew up watching Spaceballs, but hadn't seen Star Wars. (laughs) So when I saw Star Wars, I was like, oh, that's from Spaceballs. And then you were like, there's no pizza in this one. How dumb. So when I was watching She's All That, I was like, oh my God, that's the joke from Not Another Teen Movie. (laughs) Anyway, this movie is one of the most offensive, (laughs) insulting movies I've ever seen in my entire life. I honestly can't judge between Ace Ventura and this movie, which one I hate more. What? Yeah, this is radioactive hot garbage. (laughs) It's... This movie was misogynistic. It was racist. It was homophobic. Um, It was insulting to, like, my intelligence. (laughs) I have so many complaints about this movie. I was offended watching this movie. I thought it would just be, like, bad. I didn't think I would literally have this reaction. I had a visceral reaction to this movie. Yeah, this is like a pickup artist, like the PUA, like you see on the internet. A pickup artist manual. It's a story literally about a guy grooming a girl like, we can just, like, start with the most basic pitch of the movie. And which, is, which is Pygmalion. So it's based off yes. of Pygmalion. And the story of that is a guy builds a statue of a woman in his image. It's, like, also the basis of My Fair Lady. But, like, that story is misogynistic. Right. <laughs> and, like, so even though it's based off classic literature, the whole, the premise of this movie insults me. Like, just what it's about is insulting to me <laughs> as a person, as a woman. Anyway, wait, wait, Chris, what did you think before we just, like, go crazy? (laughs) I didn't find this movie offensive, really. I feel like it's knowing enough that, like, what they're doing is wrong that it didn't strike me as offensive. I think there are definitely things about the 90s in general, because we'll find them in all of these movies, that did not age well. We've talked about them in other movies on the podcast. There's definitely attitudes toward women that don't hold up, I don't think, especially in the last year. There are no women in this movie who exist for any reason other than to please or potentially please men. Women have absolutely no utility in this movie other than men. I don't know if I totally agree with that but yeah i I feel like the movie on the terms of the 90s i think it isn't that offensive compared to like the rest of everything else i just feel like it's kind of soaking in the same thing that like we talked about in the molly ringwald movies and it doesn't really feel like we can definitely talk about ways in which this is different than those movies because it's not the exact same movie in any way But I don't feel like this movie was, like, worse than those movies. So I'm coming to it as a person who didn't see this movie Mm -hmm. growing up. So I'm coming to it as a 2018, hey, let's throw on a movie. Does it work or not? And this 100% did not work. So I hear what you're saying. Like, in the 90s, this probably wasn't that bad. But I'm watching it now. Like, we're watching it now. And so as if this came out tomorrow as is, like, what would you think? But it didn't. I mean, but I mean, but it wouldn't. It wouldn't be this movie, right? But that's what I'm saying. What if you're like a teenager and you've never seen it and you just put this on today's teenager, 2018? Well, I think you have to watch old movies with the context of the time that they were made in. I think sometimes you can bring that perspective, but as a movie, that's just like either works or doesn't. 
and provides like entertainment or doesn't. I feel like in 2018, this movie does not. All right, so let's talk about the plot of this movie for a second for anyone who hasn't seen it. The movie is about uh, Zachary Seiler, played by Freddie Prinze Jr., who is very much the big man on campus, so much so that there's a picture of him hanging in the, the hallways. And he and his rich best friend, Dean Sampson Jr., played by Paul Walker, decide to make a bet that Zach can turn any girl in school into a prom queen, no matter how hideously deformed and disfigured she may be, like Rachel Lee Cook is. But having a ponytail and glasses. And paint spattered overalls. <laughs> so that is definitely a misogynistic bet. As happens in these kinds of scenarios, like he actually starts genuinely falling for her. And she wrestles with whether or not she likes him and feeling like she's possibly being set up for a Carrie-like incident at the prom. And then, I mean, basically, they end up together. Yes. I mean, let's just start with all the problems. Like, number one is Rachel Lee Cook's character. Lainey Boggs. Lainey is a character when we meet her. There is nothing wrong with her. She is an intelligent, artistic, independent spirit. But the movie posits that something is wrong with her. And she does need to change. And she changes for the better by being with Freddie Prince Jr. And she's seen as pretentious and stuffy because she cares about global crises. And she's seen as unattractive because she wears a ponytail and doesn't have contacts in, I guess, because she needs to be able to see, even though that's never a thing in the movie. And she's seen as unintelligent and just all these bad things, even though today, if she, she would be perfectly fine. And even if she has flaws, like, there's why, do, why does she need to change to, to fix somebody else's idea of what a high school girl needs to be? But that's such a trope of high school movies. Like, Grease did that, and The Breakfast Club did that. Like, yeah, they I all have say, problems with those movies, too. Right. <laughs> But I, so I'm just saying, like, this movie doesn't stand out from teen movies before in that sense. It doesn't stand out, but it still doesn't make it good. Like, it's still a problem in this movie, one of many, <laughs> of being misogynistic. Right. I mean, I, I I would agree with the argument that it's not necessarily the worst offender among all of them ever. But that's not saying anything in its favor at all. And even on its merits, again, like, so who gives a fuck Freddie Prinze Jr. is handsome? What is it about him that's supposed to actually be appealing? Like, Oh, he's oh, really well. smart. <laughs> he got, he into, got <laughs> into too many colleges. That is his, yeah, that is his problem. That's his big issue. three Ivy League colleges, and yet he doesn't want to tell anybody? Like, I didn't understand that part of the plot. Like, what would have made... And he's also, like, the number... Like, what did he say? He's like, I'm the five fifth percent... Like, he's in the top of the class. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's valedictorian, but he's, like, the top of the class. But it's like, okay, maybe he is smart in all these honors classes, but maybe he didn't get into his dream schools. Like, and that's the struggle that he has to go through of, like, disappointing his father. But the fact that he's the smartest guy in the school, super handsome, and got into all these Ivy Leagues, and for some reason he's still, like like, ashamed or something. Like, I just didn't buy that. Again, there's literally nothing wrong with him either. <laughs> yeah. Except that he's a stalker. Yeah, pretty much. No, pretty much that. He's completely stalking this woman who has clearly said over and over, I don't want to go out with you. I want nothing to do with you. And I know he's, like, a bet. Like, he's got, like, money or whatever it is. What What is, what's right? Oh, we don't know until the end what's mm -hmm. writing on it. Um, wait, well, he, what is he going to get? Was it money? It was money, right? Or am I thinking of 10 Things I Hate About You? <laughs> We're all we'll, the same movie. We'll get there. I don't remember <laughs> any discussion of yeah. finance. Okay. Is that true? My bet? My bet? Am I a fucking bet? Yes. 
You didn't think you became popular for real, did you? Oh, you did. That's so sweet. Anyway, um, he's stalking her. Like, I would literally, by the second time, if I was th- this person's mother or parent, I'd be like, I'm calling the police. But instead, her, her family and this are like, why don't you hang out with him? We're just going to have him over and watch TV together, even though you've clearly said over and over how much you do not like this person. Yeah, I mean, that's a nut- that's like every romantic comedy, which is weird, but... Again, like, yeah. not a good thing for this movie. Yeah, I think, Chris, like, the what your argument essentially boils down to is it's, like, repackaging these old sexist tropes in a 90s outfit. Well, it's not repackaging them. It's the package that we all got in the 90s. This right, was that, the package. That's all I'm, that's all I'm saying, is that yeah. it, it's a... It's the regurgitation of that genre just through the particular lens of the kind of post-grunge 90s. And I just don't think the story works on its own merits, even if it's not any particularly worse than, you know, like a long duck dong moment. I don't think you could, like, particularly find in this. That is worse, yeah. There's no topping long duck dong for anything. Yeah, but but still, it's like, it's ultimately a movie about someone grooming a woman to fall in love with him, basically. I mean, I just don't think the story works on its own merits. No, and it doesn't go to the degree of long duck dong from 16 Candles, but... It's racist. And let's talk about the black characters in this movie and how... So, in Not Another Teen Movie, I didn't... I mean, every criticism I have is kind of, like, covered by that movie, making fun of She's All That. But, like, there's a black character who's like, I'm only here to say damn! And, uh, what are the other words? (laughs) That's whack. That's whack! And it's true. It's it's so true. They were not even, like, making it up that the uh, there's, like, a black friend that Freddie Prince Jr. and his circle has, and he literally is there to just be like, damn, that's whack. And there's, uh, the the title comes from uh, rapping, two, two black guys rapping in the schoolyard, and we never see them again. They're never, ever doing anything else. Yeah, non-white <laughs> characters are basically ornamental in most of these movies, really. Yeah, it was just, it was honestly shocking the degree that they really are there to function as what we think black people would say and 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 rap um i don't know there were more black people in this movie than in almost any other one of these movies or any other like teen movie there's gabrielle union and lil kim play like the posse of oh yeah i did not recognize her <laughs> jody lynn o'keefe um and then usher is also in it and right. so there's I mean, that's no, I, more... No, I noted that. They they literally appear in the movie, but they don't really have substantial characters that are driving the story or the drama forward. I'm not going to argue with that, but... It felt like a white person being like, this is going to be a black character. Let's have him say, damn, and that's whack. Like, because I don't know how to write for black people. <laughs> it just felt so... It felt, it felt embarrassing. I, of course, do not plead any special knowledge of 90s movies uh, of this genre in particular, but I don't remember seeing Rachel Lee Cook in anything else ever. She was in Tom and Huck. Again. She played Becky Thatcher. I have not seen Rachel Lee Cook she in anything else She played Becky Bain ever. in <laughs> Tom and Huck. I only know this because she was in Tom and Huck, and so I followed her career just a tiny bit. But she was in Josie and the Pussycats, and she was in yeah. this movie, and... That's it. <laughs> she was in 
movies that need yeah. not be mentioned. Oh, again. oh, and she was Marianne in the Babysitters Club movie. Yeah, I mean, so I I like Karen Culkin. Um, I, I, Usher's fun. I like Anna Paquin. There's some people in this cast I like, but especially Oscar winning Anna Paquin. The, yeah, the two leads, Freddie Prince Jr. and Rachel Lee Cook, I think are just mediocre actors at best. And I mean, again, it's not like they have grand material to work with here, but I I just felt like it was kind of TV-level acting at most. I definitely agree with that. I, I don't think Freddie Prince Jr. has ever been the most charismatic of actors. <laughs> not even in Scooby-Doo? Not even then. <laughs> and Rachel Lee Cook as well. Um, yeah, I mean, they're... They're pretty generic leads. I mean, I think they're not given much to work with either. Both of those characters are really bland. Like, their idea of her being a rebel is she wears glasses, has a ponytail. Her mom died. But, like, the first thing we see in this movie is the words riots in Mogadishu, which is really strange. Yeah, I remember that. But she's, like, this rebellious artist. But, like, it plays pretty false that, like, her art teacher always criticizes her for not putting enough of herself in it, but the teacher just seems really like kind of cruelly like this sucks because you didn't put anything in it and it's like by this movie's terms it was still like a thoughtful piece of art like she's probably trying more than anyone else in this yeah. class. You know what I felt like there are some moments that ultimately this the tone is very silly mm-hmm. and over the top and yet there's that scene when she's painting and they come over and they're basically telling her to kill herself. Yeah I thought that was kind of interestingly dark like but I thought that was too dark. Me. It was too dark for the type of movie it was. I was like, like oh was my god. Like, discordantly if this was, dark. If this yeah. was a drama, like, okay, you know, they're saying, like, suggesting she kill herself. It just did not fit in this movie. It worked for me to, like, like in other ways, I don't really, like, find her being an outcast that believable. And that was the one moment I felt like, ooh, like, now I kind of do feel for this girl a little bit. That was uh, Clea Duvall, by the way, another... 90s yeah. teen movie. Yeah, no, I noted the insane cast of this movie, <laughs> yeah. definitely. And like Matthew Lillard and all these other Crazy. people. Dulé Hill, uh, we talked Kevin about. Kevin Pollock Lil is a stand up comic. Yeah, no, they're, they're, the cast is fun. Like, I like seeing those faces, sure, but yeah, it's. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Chris, what you were saying, I think, also brought up for me how the adults in all of these movies are. <laughs> like toxically abusive and simultaneously completely ignorant it's like to to the like it almost reminded me it was almost comical after a certain point like they're kind of like the teachers in charlie brown of like just like i don't know they they were obviously there are like different adult roles in each of these movies but especially in like she's all that just adults seemed either checked out or complete morons yeah, that also like really feels like a holdover from those '80s movies. Exactly. Um, I mean, this in particular has a very sixteen, or sorry, this in particular has a very pretty in pink setup because Definitely. of uh, the dad. Like, you get the sense that they're not like the richest family in the block, and like the sensitive dad character is a take on Harry Dean Stanton, totally from Pretty in Pink. Although I would argue not done quite as <laughs> quite as yeah. nuanced, Edley. Nuancedly. for me there were a couple of bright spots in this movie so i didn't have any fond memories of this movie really at all so i had totally forgotten that matthew lillard and anna packman were in this movie uh because i didn't even look at the cast before i like put it on and so anna packman plays zach's little sister and i found her to be like kind of a nice counterpoint to 
the like misogyny where she's like this kind of precocious I don't know how old she's supposed to be, like, 12. And she's, like, a very thoughtful, like, intelligent character, like, even more so than our heroine. So uh, who's the lucky rebound skank? Rebound skank? Well, I mean, there's got to be somebody, right? Well, I wouldn't say somebody, but there is sort of a project. Project? Well, tell you the truth, she kind of, uh, she kind of blew me off. I like her already. Well, the only thing I can figure is it's got to be some kind of mistake. Zach, I realize it's a difficult concept for a bitch magnet such as yourself to grasp, but did it ever occur to you to make a little effort? What do you mean? Find out where she hangs out. Find out what she likes. She didn't win another Oscar for this movie, (laughs) but I was actually, like, more interested in her as a character and was, like, kind of happy every time she popped up. And, like, at the end, she starts a little romance with the ducky proxy here who is named Jesse Jackson for some reason. (laughs) I did not notice that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's going on there, but who's you know, has kind of a crush on Lainey and then, you know, obviously is not Zach, so does not get her. Uh, So I found that to be, like, a pleasant surprise. I really enjoyed Matthew Lillard in this movie, playing a real-world cast-off who then dates um, Jodie Lynn O'Keefe's popular girl character, who is, like, as bitches go, like, she's really bitchy. Like, I think she's very successfully bitchy in this movie in a way that, like, you really... She doesn't... I mean, these aren't the deepest characters, but she has, like, a little bit of an interior life where she's, you know, like, kind of, like, dating this guy, trying to be, you know, cool, and then, like, she realizes she kind of hates him, but, like, takes a while before she actually dumps him. And I don't know, I enjoyed all those scenes because I thought it was a good satire of early reality TV, and Matthew Lillard was really fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, I, I prefer other bitches in, in other <laughs> movies, uh, but I've always liked Matthew Lillard. So I thought, as far as if we need to reach for a bright spot, if we need to have <laughs> at least one... We must, we must try. Then I, I think he's the closest. Because like I said, like I did watch Real World and those some of those really early reality shows, and I thought he did totally nail that. Like, And I've always found him a really charming presence on screen. Yeah, I found it weird that like this movie... like. His sister is actually the star of this movie, basically, because she she's the one who does all the work. She gives her the makeover. Does she literally fit her for contacts up there in her room because she just takes her glasses off? She has to see. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we should talk a little bit more of just about like that conceit that like this girl is obviously very pretty. Gorgeous. And I think like in particular this didn't age well because like now she's so much like every girl. Like you would find a million girls like her not just looks wise but in this movie like part of her edge is that she's like socially conscious and that's just something that like she's like really a hipster basically before I think the movies knew what a hipster was. I just remember this moment from 21 Jump Street the reboot um that I loved and Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill, you know, have their own experiences in high school, I think in like sometime in the 90s and they go back to high school. But now all the all the people that would be nerdy back when they were in high school are now like the cool guys. Mm -hmm. Like it's cool to have good grades and it's cool to be like socially aware and like care about the environment. And it's just I just thought that was like an interesting like take on this because, yeah, like being artistic and smart 
and, you know, aware of the issues is like the cool thing now. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> She's curious about the world. God, what a bitch. She's so stuck up and uptight. She like reads books. <laughs> I enjoyed a lot of the dialogue of this movie. Like, none of it is remotely believable or, you know, but I just, I thought it was, like, bonkers, but in, like, kind of a fun way. Like, at one point, like, I think it's Paul Walker, because who else would say this? He says, check out the Bobos on Super Freak. Hey, now, check out the Bobos on Super Freak. You know, Zach, from up here, she almost looks normal. (laughs) <laughs> like there's just this like way with language did Aaron that is, Sorkin also do a polish on I'm sorry this? what is he referring to breasts? Uh, the breasts <laughs> on Lainey I believe you see Becky you transpose the B the second OB in boob mm-hmm. to there's another line uh, I think one of the girls says Taylor's gonna shit frisbees like I'm not saying that these are like great lines but I they were like different enough like they at least weren't like totally generic i was just like i don't know what that means but i was like at least it kept me like kind of engaged with what was going on whereas if they had just said it more generically it would have felt like i was expecting this movie to be more generic than it was and things like matthew lillard actually gave it more edge than i remembered it having while i'm not saying that it is a particularly edgy film i don't know if i'm just a grump but i you i I didn't laugh at one joke. I literally did not laugh one single time in this movie. I And this is going to be true of pretty much every second of all of these movies. I'm sure there are things about it that are cute. I don't think there are jokes in these movies. I don't think there are funny lines of dialogue. Like, I, don't, I did not find a real earned moment of comedy basically in any of these and it's not like i like set out wanting to hate them um because again like i i've liked several of these actors and many of the things that i saw around that time and still enjoy them now but it's it's just like even when there were some emotional moments that kind of worked that kind of some beats of their like relationship or whatever that were kind of general genuine chemistry the comedy of it never landed for me yeah i mean i i don't know if there's any like comedic gems that I can particularly point to. I when you said that about the romances, I was actually kind of surprised because I remembered that hacky sex scene as when <laughs> as soon as it came up, and then I was actually kind of like, I, I kind of liked that moment. Like that was the most genuine moment of the movie for me. That like he did this awkward hacky sack thing, and it was like it kind of sucked, and then it started turning to be good and actually revealed something about his character. So that actually, I wrote that down as like. That was the one moment where I thought the movie was kind of funny and uh-huh. kind of great because he actually made himself vulnerable for like a half second. Yeah, exactly. Um, but again, it was that was kind of out of nowhere, and then it was back to the doldrums of the rest of the movie. Yes, there is also a gross out scene in this. So first of all, I have to ask, like, why is Lainey's little brother skating around a cafeteria giving people pepper? I just didn't understand. I must have missed that, because I do not remember that. So he skates around and offers pepper to Sarah Michelle Gellar. What do you mean? She's in this movie. Oh, is she? Yeah. Well, like an extra? Yeah. So this is the high school where they filmed Buffy, and so she was on set, I guess, for... Oh, 
filming. So she pickups. was a person oh. that, like, she was a, a name. Yeah. She wasn't like an actual extra. She was just like wandered on set. No, like, yeah. She's, she was like <laughs> more famous than anyone else in this movie. <laughs> she liked to crash sets where she was the most famous person there right. just to make everyone. Oh, yeah. She was worse. in Cruel Intentions this year. So yeah. she was a name. She, yeah. yeah. She was a huge name. Like, this was Buffy season three, like, kind of the height of the show's popularity. And, like, she. She wouldn't say a line. Like, they wanted her to say a line, but she's like, no. So they just have her, like, shake her head no at Pepper. So obviously, that was my one fond memory of this movie, was that I did remember that Sarah Michelle Gellar... Refuses Pepper. <laughs> refuses Pepper. <laughs> it's the deepest moment of the film. Uh, but then there's that uh, pizza pube scene. I don't remember that. Wait. You don't remember wait. the pizza pubes? Ta- ta- talk like- about it to the audience, so I, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> well, there's a bully who puts his pubes on a pizza to, I think, give to Kieran Culkin. And then Freddie Prinze Jr., in order to make Lainey like him, instead makes the bullies eat Ew. their own pubes on the pizza. The pubes were, by the way, made out of corn husks. <laughs> they are very gnarly looking. This is uh, just disgusting having you retell this. It is. No, it's a really, it's a very different kind of tone from the rest of the movie. It it was put in because they wanted something to appeal to guys because they were worried that the movie was otherwise too feminine, guys, I guess. Guys, does it appeal to you? Uh, guys? No, no, actually. It did not at all appeal to me. I mean, I'm here for the Sarah Michelle Gellar cameo, so I don't know if I should speak. <laughs> and look, I have a... We I, need to relate to guys. There's too much romance in this movie. What can we do? What can we do? How about we put pubes on a pizza? Not more bobos, <laughs> Becky? <laughs> so in the end of this movie, uh, it is revealed that she is a fucking bet. She does say fucking, which is... That's a bad word uh, that you don't always find in a PG-13 movie. Just once. It's allowed once. And he races to save her virginity, basically, because it's like, I did find this, like, misogynistic a little bit, or just, like, ridiculous, that, like, he has to run to the hotel room where she is, because apparently she's not capable of saying, like, no, I don't want to have sex with you, to Paul Walker, who's, like, planning to nail her that night. And then, like, it weirdly, like, cuts away from that, and, like, you don't even see the scene where, like, he tries that on her, and she says no. It... It strangely, like, keeps the focus all on him, and then there's, like, the surprise reveal that she's actually just, like, back at home. And it really does not consider, like, the woman's perspective in this yeah. at all. Oh, yeah, no, that's so strange. It's strange that it doesn't consider that. Last point I want to make about this movie is the choreographed dance scene. Yeah, at the prom, this movie is very silly, besides the parts that we <laughs> said were not, like, trying <laughs> suggesting you kill yourself. Um, and then at the end, they're at the prom, and there is a choreographed dance number where everyone is basically a professional dancer, knows all the moves. Twist! <laughs> <laughs> um, wh- who came up with that? Why did they, th- why, why did they decide to, like, make it that a choreographed was, dance? That was not in the script. That was the director's idea. Yeah, I was going to say, Mr. Justin DeKelly had to get his uh, dance sequence in. What is that? What? Why? <laughs> it's so bizarre. It's really bizarre, and I love it. I actually, like, it was just, like... Yes. This is what I remember about the movie when I didn't see it, but people were, like, I don't know if they were complaining or just talking about it, but, like, the choreographed prom dance number was the thing that I remember people talking about back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it's it's totally ridiculous, but, like, it just kind of, like, looking back on it now, it's just it just, like, makes this movie, like that much more fun in in that portion of it 
for me. Like, I'm just like, that's insane. And I love just like seeing a bunch of like kids in like 90s clothes dancing to a song that was very, very 1999 that I also really liked at the time. So I don't know. I had a good time with that. <laughs> but th- so the end of this movie is we find out that Freddie Prince Jr. So he didn't turn her into a prom queen. And the thing that he had to do was go naked at graduation. Mm-hmm. So this movie ends with everyone looking at a minor's dick. Yeah. <laughs> That's how the movie ends. That's how it ends. That's what it's building towards. It doesn't work. <laughs> what? Like, I just, the move, that happened, and then there was, like, credits, and I was like, yeah. what? That was an M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> twist, because he, uh, that happened to him at, like, one of his, someone what? streaked at his graduation, so he wanted to put that in, and so that's how they ended up, like, figuring out what the bet would be. Boy, that was, like, just... Didn't work. Didn't work. Yeah. It's a weird ending because, like, the, the last shot is just like he throws the volleyball at her and everyone's like, ha ha ha. It's like, <laughs> oh, there's a 17 or 18-year-old's penis. <laughs> We're all fine with this. <laughs> <laughs> What's the age of consent in this state? <laughs> I mean, I feel like streaking was a thing, like, in the 70s where it was like people would oh, kind of like. Also, yeah. It was very much also still a thing in the 80s and 90s. But <laughs> not usually by minors. No, and usually it would be like a running, like I'm running. Right, that's what know? doesn't. I mean, if he had done, if he had streaked like running, I don't know how they would have filmed that. That's probably why they didn't do it yeah, that way. But. Streaking implies running. It implies motion. <laughs> because you're going to get caught. Yeah. This <laughs> is stationary streak. This is stripping. <laughs> Technically, Technically, he's a showgirl at this point. Oh my god! So not all that. Never was, never will be. I think that I had it right when I was sixteen to avoid this movie. Yep. That brings us to our next movie, Ten Things I Hate About You," which was released March thirty first, nineteen ninety nine. So just a couple of months after she's all that. Can we focus on me for a second, please? I am the only girl in school who's not dating. Oh no, you're not. Your sister doesn't date, and I don't intend to. And why is that again? Have you seen the unwashed miscreants that go to that school? Where did you come from? Planet Loser? As opposed to Planet... Look at me, look at me. (laughs) Okay, here's how we solve this one. Old rule out. New rule. Bianca can date. When she does. (gasps) But she's a mutant. What if she never dates? Then you'll never date. Oh, I like that. And I'll get to sleep at night. The deep slumber of a father whose daughters aren't out being impregnated. The budget was $30 million. Opening weekend was $8.3 million. The domestic gross was $38.2 million. And worldwide gross was $53.5 million. So, you know, decent size hit. Not quite as big as uh, She's All That. But who, who can really measure up to that? <laughs> the movie was pretty well reviewed. It got a 70 score on Metacritic. One of the perfect reviews was from the Washington Post's Stephen Hunter. He said, It's a celebration of young American women finding them smarter, tougher, shrewder, more rigorous, more persistent, and more honest than any movie in many a moon. With less praise was Wesley Morris of the San Francisco Examiner, who said, The movie's afraid of styles, turning Cat from riot girl to solid gold dancer in the time it takes to drop one notorious B.I.G. song at the house party, which is why it's the spam of processed teenage movies. So, differing opinions. You guys did not see this movie, correct? Correct. I first saw it for the first time last year, and then I rewatched it a few days ago. What inspired you to watch it? It was on Netflix, and I've never seen it. (laughs) And I was working out, and I was like, I need something (laughs) to just be on TV. Something to get me pumped. Yeah. 
She's All That was based on Pygmalion. This was based on Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. So this movie's twist on that is the sisters Kat and Bianca, who live with their single dad in the Seattle area. And Bianca is not allowed to date until her older sister Kat dates, because her dad decides that. And shenanigans ensue with uh, various boys trying to manipulate other people into dating the girls so that they can date the other girls. Well, the whole point is that the girl that uh, Kat is that she's the shrew. Yes. And that she, you know, is, I don't know if she's man-hating, but she's just, uh, she's kind of seen as a bitch. Mm-hmm. And, and hard to work with, I guess. <laughs> and and doesn't, isn't really interested in dating men. Mm-hmm. She's not a lesbian, but she's not interested in pursuing romantic relationships. And that's why um, it's difficult for her younger sister, because she doesn't get to date. And she does want romantic relationships. Right. So Kat is played by Julia Stiles. Bianca is played by Larissa Olenek. Heath Ledger plays Patrick Verona, the love interest of Kat. Andrew Keegan plays Joey Donner, who is the love interest of Bianca. And then Joseph Gordon-Levitt is Cameron, who is trying to woo Bianca. (laughs) And he's the one who kind of sets this whole thing off. It's all very Shakespearean in the twists and turns. And one of the characters plays Shakespeare, I guess. Right. David Krumholtz. Yeah. (laughs) This movie's like nod to Shakespeare. I mean, beyond just... There's a lot of them. Cat's friend is obsessed with Shakespeare to the extent that if someone pretends to be him, she will go for it and wear a big old Renaissance fair gown. <laughs> I mean, this is a weird place to start the discussion of this movie. But, <laughs> but why not? Like, it's, I don't know, um, it's weird. That's not as weird as having a centerfold cutout of Shakespeare hanging in her locker. <laughs> right. <laughs> Like I, sexy Shakespeare. <laughs> this character is also, she's like kind of with Kat in the beginning of the movie, but she has no personality. And then like halfway through, it's revealed that she's like obsessed with Shakespeare and like basically believes herself to be like a maiden fair. And it's like... <laughs> and it comes out of, yeah, that really comes out of nowhere. It's, yeah. Like she seems like a crazy person, like a, a mentally unstable person. Like I, yes. I was a little, <laughs> I was a little concerned just about this girl and like whether she was mentally sound enough to consent to things on the Brom. So <laughs> this movie begins with it's Ben. Yeah, it's Ben. It's Ben. Before we get into the rest of the movie, you know what doesn't hold up? Starting your movie with the bare naked ladies. <laughs> True. As I was saying off record, off microphone before we began recording, I feel like the Bare Naked Ladies and that Sixpence None the Richer song, Paula Cole, any one of these was legally mandatory in every teen related movie and product of the 90s. Yeah, it immediately began this movie on a sour note for me. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I just like my first note on this is, oh God. <laughs> it really. Especially not having ever seen it. I mean, and that's a song that... So, like, Sixpence None the Richer, I don't like that song. But it's, like, a song that you would still hear, you know? Like, and you wouldn't think too much about it. But, like, The Bare Naked Ladies is, like, so cemented in that time. And I feel like you can't put it on without everyone being like, Whoa! It's, like, (laughs) it's the MASH theme, but for the entire world. So, it was really funny to, like, see it in a movie. And I was like, oh, people were taking this song seriously at some point. Like, they hadn't heard it before. And they were like, this is what we need to start our movie with. It was a hit. Oh, it was. A huge hit. Uh, My mom, I think, had their CD. Like, we listened to the song all the time. 
I don't think I ever loved it, but like there was a time when it was like fine, and then there was a time when it was not fine anymore. You know what? I think we think of the bare naked ladies kind of like Smash Mouth, like their jokes. But yes. there is a section of the of the population currently alive today that are huge BN. What is it? BNL uh, fans. <laughs> mostly canadian i mean they're a canadian group uh yeah they were they sold a shit ton of records not just of that one um but also they are really fundamentally only known for that song yeah this movie has a weird soundtrack in general i guess while we're talking about that does it it's a really it's like this weird mishmash of music yeah there's that band on the roof at the end yeah so letters to cleo is in like three scenes of the movie so there's a like a, a ska element, I guess, and then there's like Notorious B.I.G. playing at the party, and then there's there's just like weird music cues throughout this movie. Like I kept being just like, what feel are they going for here? It was not consistent. <laughs> Wait, did you mention the Heath Ledger song that he sings no. on, the, on the Bleachers? No. So that is um... I need you, baby. Right? I need mm-hmm. you. What is that song? Um... Can't take my eyes off of you. Yeah. Yeah. That song was actually supposed to be I Think I Love You, but. um, That's Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. Can't take my eyes off of Mm -hmm. you. So, how did you guys feel about this movie, Seth? I feel about this film with the same intensity that Becky felt about She's All That. Um, I thought this movie is. uh, How I worded it at the time, at least is that this movie is fucking noxious and toxic from the start. It's inherently female shaming and sex negative. It's also like a pickup artist movie, like kind of story. Um, and that much of the dialogue in the movie sounds like it was written by a 17 year old in his mom's basement. So you loved it. Yes. I adored it. That was 10 things that Seth hates about 10 <laughs> things. I hate. Yeah, about I'm surprised you. you didn't list your review like that. Yeah. I should have numbered it. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> Didn't I didn't know there was math expected on this. What about you, Becky? So when I first saw it while working out last year, <laughs> um, I think I had low expectations. And I actually was really surprised that I actually thought it was pretty funny. And I was entertained by it. When I stopped working out, I was like still watching it and finished it. Like, I remember being like really caught off guard. Um, and I remember telling people like, I just saw 10 things I hate about you. And I thought it was really good. So I rewatched it for this podcast, and I think that a lot of that goodwill kind of vanished on a second viewing, um, maybe because my expectations weren't so low, but I still, out of the three movies, out of a lot of the teen movies, I would say this is more on the top end, but um, I still have problems with it, but ultimately I enjoyed watching it. I wasn't offended and insulted. There were moments that we'll get into, but like ultimately I enjoyed watching it. I was kind of offended and insulted. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I knew that this movie had probably the best reputation out of these three movies. Definitely. So I was expecting to like it the most, and I watched it the last of of these three. And I don't know if I was just kind of fed up with these storylines, but I really, like, this one really rubbed me the wrong way, where Hmm. at least in She's All That, like, you can tell that the guys like the guys kind of get a bit of a comeuppance at the end like they have to like win her back after 
manipulating her. In this one, it's not even treated as like it, there's anything wrong with them, like making bets and and paying each other to go out with her. And this one really just felt a lot sleazier to me. It's sleazier in every direction. Um, and I, Chris, I really resonate with you saying that like you're not sure how much of it was due to the fact that you watched it last. Yeah, because I too watched this last, and obviously there are a lot of these tropes that really do repeat across all the movies of this genre, but I just really resented the fuck out of it this time around. Um, because again, it's just the people who are doing these things that in any modern frame of reference are pretty inherently misogynistic and just shitty and sleazy, um, never really get any comeuppance. And in this one, I think more so than any of the others because of how it's set up as like this girl can't date until this other, until her sister gets a date. Mm -hmm. Like it's even one more further layer of removing any agency from female characters whatsoever to where she's like literally instrumental only for her body, like lit- in a literal sense in the story of the film. Right. I mean, I think like pretty much any of these movies, not even the ones that we're talking about, but that are based on these old plots, like there's an element of them that doesn't work now. But I feel like She's All That did a little bit better of a job of making it feel like people in the 20th century would do this. And this movie, like it just felt like Shakespeare in contemporary times, but, like, they didn't update, like, the story nearly enough. I mean, one of my major problems with this movie is Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, Cameron, who, like, the silence, (laughs) the silence is my description of his character, because I don't know a thing about him. He doesn't seem to have parents. He may have, like, popped into thin air on this campus. Like, there's no... He might be a ghost. Yeah, like, he, he just, like, shows up. This movie does the whole Jim Carrey saxophone thing, too, when he first sees Bianca. And it's like he falls for her, like, at first sight. And I'm like, ew. Like, Did he fall for her at first sight? I thought, yes, he, I thought he liked her over a while before we even no, dive I into think, the movie. Is isn't it, it his first day at school? Is it's it? his first day at oh, school. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The teacher introduces him in the new class. Yeah, oh, yeah. he's the new guy. Yeah. Okay. But, like, yeah. where did he come from? Like, right. why did he move? Like, he literally, like, not he even no the smallest is, yeah, attention no. to anything is paid. Like, he literally, like, could be a ghost in this movie. He could. <laughs> he is a ghost who has the hats for Alex Mack. <laughs> now, over oh here. Oh, my God. What group is she in? You don't even think about it, group. Bianca Stratford, she's a soft. I burn, I pine, I perish. Of course you do. Uh, so I just like really like there was nothing to make me like this guy or see like what he liked about her other than she's cute. Like I had nothing to no frame of reference to say like oh well maybe he is doing this because you know his parents are he got into too many colleges or something. <laughs> I don't know. Like even the most basic. <laughs> Thing that doesn't what a relatable thing getting into too many good schools. At least, at least there was something. This he has no other friends except for David Crumholtz, who plays like the nerdy guy. So this movie is also like a lot of these high school movies. It is really obsessed with the cliques in high school, and there's the scene where they're like, "Oh, these are these kids, and you know these what? are those okay. kids." I I think a reason why at first I was like really caught off guard 
with this movie is it felt like it was making fun of 90s teen movies in a way because I love when they're making fun of high school cliques and there's the Jamaican wannabes and the cowboys group like it seemed knowingly like ridiculous to me for about five minutes yeah that was a moment in the movie where I was like is this gonna suddenly be actually entertaining And, and and then it wasn't to the left, we have the coffee kids. Oh, that was Costa Rican, buddy. Very edgy. Don't make any sudden movements around them. These delusionals are your white Rastas. Uh, they're big Marley fans. They think they're black. Semi-political, but mostly... Smoke a lot of weed? Yeah. These guys... Wait, wait, let me guess. Cowboys? Yeah, but the, the closest they've come to a cow is McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really hold the second time, but I remember the first time being surprised at how I, f- I felt like it was clever and, and winky, like it knew what it was. And I felt that way about the dad character, which I don't even know if we're getting into yet, but I really enjoyed him because it, it did feel like it was almost like a satire versus trying to play it straight. I don't know that it felt like that to me. It didn't feel like a satire to me. It felt 100%. It just felt mm-hmm. like... So to me, this movie is like the most like clueless like it feels like a really pale imitation of clueless because you have the dad like unmarried who is like very patriarchal over his daughter and they're rich they're they're pretty well off it's not quite as um, much of a thing as it is in clueless but uh so this really just felt like a really like weak clueless ripoff to me and so like the dad like the dad stuff in clueless is funny like i liked that actor and there were some good moments but i just i kind of went with creepy on on some of this is just that like he was too involved in his daughter's like dating like it wasn't just like you can't date it was like this weird manipulation of them this was like those parents who do like promise ring ceremonies with their daughters like it's there's something really psychosexual and creepy about it it just i I like this whole monologue about not dating and the like pregnancy and (laughs) no I, i thought it was funny when he made her like try on the like pregnancy stomach because that at least, like, got him. But I just, I didn't feel like it was consistent. Like, if if he's worried about her getting pregnant, like, saying, oh, you can't date until your sister can date. Like, that's not a solution to that problem. I mm-hmm. mean, he thinks it is because she's the shrew. But, like, that it just doesn't really make any sense. So I think we should talk about the shrew, uh, Julia Stiles. So... This movie, like, She's All That is ridiculed, especially in Not Another Teen Movie, for having, like, the rebellious girl in glasses and a ponytail. But, like, they don't even put glasses and a ponytail on her (laughs) in this movie. Like, she is just a cute blonde girl. (laughs) It's just because she cares about things and she's not interested in guys. She's above all that. Is that the sequel to She's All That? (laughs) Above all that. (laughs) Then a prequel, She's Below All That. I just find it really... Like, I like Julia Stiles well enough as an actress. She had her moments in this movie, but I think a lot of it just... It didn't feel like her. Like, she was... She's this kind of really angry girl that I can imagine a completely different character saying these lines... But, like, it's a much, like, harder-edged kind of girl who, like, probably dresses very differently and, you know, like, has some piercings or, you know, I don't want to stereotype, but if if we're stereotyping people... <laughs> but she's in a biker gang. <laughs> yeah, and I was just, like, they're all talking about her like she's noxious and it's not so much about her looks. It's more about, like, her overall personality and how rude she is. But, like, it still is... It, <laughs> it felt like... Literally, like, if it, she's all that, she was just wearing the, like, red dress for the prom the whole time. And they were like, ew, that girl. Like, it was just... 
Like at least I don't really do feel something. like this movie has characters. I just don't. It's it it kind of has plot devices and some cute little gimmicks. See, it bothers me and she's all that because at least in this movie they don't try to pretend that she's unattractive or something. It really is just her personality that people have a problem with versus and she's all that. I felt like they literally were like you have to change the way you look. But her personality is also such a put-on. Like, she's supposedly rebellious, and she does, in early scenes of the movie, some kind of things. I think it's funny when she, like, backs up her car into Andrew Keegan's car. But there's not really anything about her that's, like, actually edgy or rebellious. Like, she likes... Yeah. Like, and and in fact, whenever she starts talking, she's like, oh, I like female bands. They're like, what? Like, you're a lesbian. (laughs) Wait, wait. So in the beginning of the movie, isn't there's a car full of girls and what they're listening to some, is it one week they're listening to? No. Well, maybe it is. And then she pulls up and she's listening to like, I don't give a damn about a reputation. Yeah, Joan Jett. Oh, yeah, Joan Jett. (laughs) Like, okay, movie, you picked, you got it, you got us. (laughs) All that subtext, you guys, we're really drawing you in. (laughs) I mean, that, it's just, it's just this this like ridiculous portrait of a rebel, which I maybe in the nineties that did seem kind of rebellious, but it's cert like as much as like Lainey from She's All That does not age because she's basically just a hipster, like this girl's rebellion is not Well, let's talk about and this is the same for Never Been Kissed, like they wanna the producers of these movies want to have their cake and eat it too by having outsiders be the protagonists of these movies but they also have to be the leads of the movies so they have to be hot they have Mm -hmm. to be gorgeous white straight uh like conventionally beautiful women who are somehow an outsider and then not only that but their mission has to be to be accepted by the popular clique and to be romantically paired up with a popular person You know, it's not just that there are all these traditional things. It's also, like, an aspirational thing. Like, it's it was really strange watching all of these movies all at once because you really do get a sense of what lessons all of them are teaching. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I mean, it's pretty glaring. Can you imagine, and I can't even really think of an actress who might fit this, like, maybe Rebel Wilson or somebody that is, you know, she's beautiful still, but, Mm -hmm. like, not conventionally what we think of. But, like, if one of those girls was one of, you know, Lainey or uh, Kat or Drew Barrymore. <laughs> I can't remember her name. Josie oh, Josie Grossi. Grossi. Um, like, can you imagine? I would maybe like the movie Hairspray or something where it's actually somebody who's not seen as conventionally beautiful, like, gets to be that right. that but, character. I mean, you can also at least lean toward that with, like, costuming and hairstyle and makeup. Which, I mean, she's all that is the lazy version of that. But, like, I don't know, like, American Beauty, Thora Birch. Like, I believe that she's an outcast because she just at least, like, wore, like, darker makeup, even though she's very pretty. Yeah, but she's she, like, like a wallflower in that movie. Yeah, like, I would believe her as this cat character, like, way more than I believed Julia Stiles. I want to talk about just the moment that Heath Ledger came on screen. My heart fluttered. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, I mean, his performance is is fine he's a he's the thing that he is is charming yeah and gorgeous and he has a presence in this movie and every movie he's in that like that guy was born to be a star like we want people want to look at him and just when he smiles like and i i just got immediately sad actually watching this now it made me really sad because i miss him 
It was interesting. I hadn't seen Baby Heath Ledger in a long time. Baby Heath Ledger. <laughs> I was, like, very used to his, like, adult roles. And so, I mean, I knew that he had started in movies like this and A Knight's Tale, but I had not rewatched them at all since 1999. So, yeah, this was his first movie role. And so he is... Really? It was his first? Yeah. He's very charismatic in it, I would say. Again, he doesn't really fit the character. Like, the yeah. character is supposed to be this, like, dark rebellious guy and he's like he's a sweetie the sweet, he's like, a sweetie. it's very yeah, weird like it's weird they have all these like stories about him where he like i don't know ate a live chicken or something like that <laughs> and i was like you could never never believe that so it's like just the whole fundamental plot of this movie is so so false to me like even more so than she's all that because like neither of these people is remotely who their people around them are constantly describing mm-hmm. yeah i bet you that heath ledger walked in auditioned for this movie and they were like this person is a star we don't care we're cramming him into this movie and we're gonna make a star but like then like put him as the andrew keegan character so one thing that also kind of bothered me about this movie and i've noticed in a lot of 90s things is that there's this real fear of like good-looking men and that like men who care about their appearance are like really villainized it's like this kind of homophobic thing i think but it's like there's a lot of villains who like he he's a model and and there's a lot of jokes about him like being a model and it's funny because he's stuck up like and like he's a dick but i don't know like i just like like this movie felt very heteronormative like oh like men can't care about their appearance and and yeah. women have to you know, like, be nice little ladies in order for men to like them. Was like, that just with Andrew Keegan's character, though? Because I didn't feel like they felt that way towards Heath Ledger's character, and he looks nice. Yeah, but, like, be, it's because, like, his character is, like, set up as someone who, like, is a model. And it, it was just kind of, like, emasculating him. And that's something that I think the 90s did a lot for, like... Any... Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it really kept up the performative gender roles, you know, that were demanded of male characters. Yeah, it was kind of, like, he wasn't, he didn't do that much that was actually a jerk. Like, he was rude to Cat, but, like, it, it's mostly, like, we're supposed to not like him because he, like, looks good and is, mm-hmm. like, into his appearance. Like, he's, like, a Gaston. <laughs> I've never liked Andrew Keegan, though. <laughs> like, he, he always seems... I don't know if it's his face or his performance and everything, but he always seems really smarmy, like, Mm -hmm. which makes me feel like he was right for this role. Yeah, no, he was. I think he was. Yeah, he does come off that way for sure. Even though, like, as we talked about in the Tina Hartthob episode, like, he ended up kind of starting his own church. And so I think he was not actually in real life like these characters at all. In fact, he had to be taught how to draw a penis on David Krumholtz's face because he did not know how to draw a penis. (laughs) I don't know what that means. Yeah, how many lessons does that take? I think it took just one, but... Is there a private tutor? He had to teach him how to draw the penis back on his own face. That character also, the David Krumholtz character, just, like, he's the one who's actually, like, driving most of the story. Like for Cameron, but I'm like, why? You just met him. And he's, like, bending over backwards to get, like, Heath Ledger to go out with this girl, like, for $75 and this and that. And it's just, like, I mean, I get that it's, like, a take on a Shakespeare play, and in the broadest beats, I'm like, okay, that's clever, but the way that it's done is there are no stakes for anyone here. Like, the stakes of this movie begin as, like, $75, and, like, then they go up to, like, $300, and that's, like, it. It's... I'm I'm just like, why is the, anyone doing this? The stakes are, if she finds out, then their romance is ruined. Like, but that doesn't happen? <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, 
I feel like Bianca, like, never even... Does she ever even find out about the bet? Or, like, get mad that, like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was, like, manipulating her sister and her this whole time? I don't think so, because from my recollection, Julia Stiles finds out, and then literally the next scene is, like, the end of the movie. Yeah. And it's resolved. And I felt mm-hmm. like that was very rushed. And I was like, oh, that just happened. Okay. And then <laughs> oh, they're making it up, and, that's, and then now letters to Cleo on the roof. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've listened to and enjoyed Letters to Cleo, but like this is like a no doubt regurgitation version of Letters to Cleo. Oh, for sure. I thought it was no doubt at first, and then I was like, no, it can't be. It's Save Ferris. And I was like, oh no, it's <laughs> Letters to Cleo. Yeah. Well, yeah, I also thought it was Save Ferris. It's, not. <laughs> it's three removed from no doubt. And it is just a weird ending to this movie that it pans over for this incredibly long time and you're like why are they panning across the entire school for no reason also why is there a high school that's hogwarts that's a real high school though i know it is but they literally are going to hogwarts this high school is insanity that stadium high school in tacoma it is well known around my parts <laughs> it is well known around the Seattle area, I should say. For those who have not seen this movie, it's picture Hogwarts, take out the wizards, and, and then put no doubt on the top. <laughs> put, put no doubt in a copy machine, then put that copy in a copy machine. Send that fax to a Pizza Hut. So when they were filming that, it was a really windy day, and they were terrified up there. And the helicopter kept like coming too close to them, and they were all afraid that it was going to like knock into them <laughs> like it's just this whimsical thing it's like it's not supposed to make sense but it's just like the music is what? weird in this movie and i have a feeling it's soundtrack related like they're like gotta sell the soundtrack yes yes yeah you, the, but the the score to this movie is also it's very filler like i don't know if you noticed that but they all like, sound like temp tracks yeah it's really really bad it really, like, just seems like they couldn't get anything and just <laughs> had to buy temp tracks and note out ripoffs for the soundtrack. <laughs> this movie has another thing in common with She's All That, which is teen nudity. Oh, I was going to... I have another thing in common with She's All That. Okay, is- well, let's start with teen nudity. <laughs> she flashes do. her teacher. Yeah, that get, did not hold up. <laughs> to get Patrick out of detention. But I'm like, why? Just wait an hour. Like, you can hang out afterwards. It's not just nudity. She flashes her boobs. I can't remember if it's, like, up or down. But the teacher <laughs> the teacher just stands there and looks. <laughs> just stand. He's not like, whoa, 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 whoa. You are a minor. <laughs> right. And my student, and this isn't appropriate, I'm going to get fired. He's just kind of <laughs> just looking at him. I mean, to be fair, if that's what she's going to do, I'm probably going to be, like, stunned for a moment and not be able to react. But, yeah, like, it's, like, the first thing she can think of. And so it's played very weirdly where she does it and then she's, like, immediately, like, why am I doing this? It's creepy. It's so creepy. Yeah, it's weird. It's not great. (laughs) Not gonna lie. The other thing it has in common with She's All That is another black person rapping. Uh huh. But not as well. <laughs> no, this the rapping is... and she's all that was better. Uh, their teacher, their who I guess is an English teacher or a Shakespeare teacher, I guess specifically Shakespeare. Um, he raps Shakespeare, and he uh, an African American teacher. And I'm just like, what is it with? Why does it every black person have to rap in these movies? Why are they? Why are they forced to rap? That's again why I found this movie much more offensive than She's All That is because that movie had a bunch of black people in it. No, they were not like really developed as characters, but not that many people in that were. But like this one is like 
just really awkwardly like let's call attention to the fact that he's black and it just like no, it comes out of nowhere in this movie. Mm-hmm. Gabrielle Union is also in this movie too. She was the best friend in. I was just gonna say she's all that, or one of the friends. Heath Ledger and Julie Stiles go on a date and they go paintballing by throwing uh-huh. paintballs at each other. Yeah, that is not paintball. That's not how paintball works. You don't just like put on a white jumpsuit and then just hit each other with paintballs. It's like literally like you're supposed to hide, and if you get hit once, you're out. <laughs> Wait, no. Paintball is when you bring buckets of paint with you and you have to splash an entire bucket of paint onto your opponent. But you only, like, the entire court is just two people. Oh, yeah. It's a one-on-one. That's a one-on-one game, paintball. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really, it's really nuts. I think that this movie has some good moments between, like, Heath Ledger and Julia Stiles. I would say they have decent chemistry as a couple sometimes. And... So, I mean, that's, if if people are, I know a lot of people are into this movie, and if they're into that romance, I, like, kind of get it in the most superficial way, but, yeah, underneath it's very problematic. This movie also, like, she goes to a high school party and gets wasted, which kind of feels out of character, but, like, the whole thing is, like, how he has to take care of her, and it just, like, made me notice, like, how these movies, like, Men are impervious to alcohol. Like, they drink, and they don't get drunk at all. They act completely sensibly. And a girl has a drink, and she goes, like, bananas, and, mm-hmm. like, starts, like, dancing crazy. Or becomes a mega slut. Yeah. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, and it's this whole, like, he has to take care of her and walk her home. And then we're supposed to feel, like, good about that. But I'm just, like... Yeah. I don't know. These movies are filled with guys stalking and harassing women who say over and over they are not interested. Yes. Both yeah. of these. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to an extent all three of these movies really do contain this message that, like, the secret to romance is persistence. And, and a sweeping gesture, like, singing, like, you yes. can manipulate and lie to a girl all you want and take money to go out with her, but as long as you sing a nice song for her, she's gonna be fine. Yeah. Excuse me, have you seen the feminine mystique? I've lost my copy. What are you doing here? I heard there was a poetry reading. You're so... Charming. Wholesome. Unwelcome? You're not as mean as you think you are, you know that? And you're not as badass as you think you are. Ooh, someone still has her panties in a twist. Don't for one minute think that you had any effect whatsoever on my panties. Then what did I have an effect on? Other than my upchuck reflex, nothing. These yeah. are, I mean, these are the tropes of romantic comedies. They are. Definitely. Like, I wonder if people getting over these tropes happen because these movies kept doing them over and over and over (laughs) and over. So what really surprised me about 10 Things I Hate About You is that it was written by two women. What? Because it felt, (gasps) to me, like the worst and it is like entirely like male the male gaze is the only driving force of it that's so surprising yeah it's karen mccullough and Kristen smith and they did later on um legally blonde and the house bunny so they're talented writers and i think show some talent in this movie but in general like i was expecting this to be like men 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 from all these movies and i was really surprised that this is the one that was written by women i also wanted to say her poem. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> it's not a good poem. It's a terrible poem. It's weird because she's set up as someone who loves like the bell jar and is very like deep and philosophical. 
and I'm really expecting better poetry from this girl. Like, she even is, like, excited by this assignment. But there are not ten things in the poem. There are, like, 14 things. Are you counting things where she says and? Like, you don't count that as one thing? No, I counted specifically each thing that she says. (laughs) Becky, are you saying that Chris doesn't know how to count things? I am. Like, let's let's count the things right now. (laughs) I hate the way you talk to me and the way you cut your hair. I hate the way you drive my car. I hate it when you stare. I hate your big dumb combat boots and the way you read my mind. I hate you so much it makes me sick. It even makes me rhyme. I hate it. I hate the way you're always right. I hate it when you lie. I hate it when you make me laugh. Even worse when you make me cry. I hate it when you're not around and the fact that you didn't call. But mostly I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. And that was 14 lines. <laughs> there aren't even 10 things. No. I just kind of assumed based on, you know, the title. <laughs> What's wrong with like 13 or 14 things I hate about a you? A baker's dozen things I somewhat dislike. That, I mean, just made me... <laughs> Like just kind of <laughs> that is dismiss like, this movie. That is insult to injury, really. That's funny, man. Our third and final movie in this prom com trilogy is Never Been Kissed, which was released April 9th, nineteen ninety nine. So basically, a week after Ten Things I Hate About You. Don't you want to show them that the cool kids don't freak you out anymore? That you can go in there and you can be friends with them and you can get your story. Yes, desperately. Plus, if you quit now, then you're no better than me. Better than I. That's a spirit. Mm. So let's hear it. Come on. I'm not Josie Grossy anymore. I'm not Josie Grossy anymore. That's it. Now, scream it. I'm not Josie Grossy anymore! Mm. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> it was budgeted at $25 million. Opening weekend was $11.8 million. It grossed $55 million in the U.S. and $84 million worldwide. And it was kind of averagely reviewed, too. Michael O'Sullivan in the Washington Post said, Drew Barrymore has figured out what works, and what works for Drew Barrymore is this, Cinderella stories, which was not a dig. <laughs> he positively <laughs> reviewed this movie. Less favorable was Rita Kempley. <laughs> Rita! The Rita Beat! she says teen movies are suddenly popping up like pimples never been kissed is like one of those big fat red ones that blooms on your nose right before a big date predictable slightly painful and as embarrassing as all get out Rita my hero (laughs) that's been the Rita beat (laughs) you know we are gonna have to do an entire Rita Kempley podcast (laughs) we're gonna have to track down Rita called the Rita beat (laughs) (laughs) Never Been Kissed was written by Abby Cohn and Mark Silverstein, who have done a number of romantic comedies, including with Drew Barrymore, He's Just Not That Into You. Also, The Vow, How to Be Single, The Story for Valentine's Day, (laughs) which is pretty much all it was. It's because it was so short that they didn't have time for anything. But like, here's this character, now this character. (laughs) The movie was directed by Raja Gosnell. Gosnell started as an editor on movies like Mrs. Doubtfire and Pretty Woman and Home Alone. So a lot of like really big, well-regarded films. As a director, he has directed Home Alone 3, Big Mama's House, Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo 2, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, The Smurfs, and The Smurfs 2. 
Well, he keeps getting work. Good for him. <laughs> Say what you will about Never Been Kissed, but this is his best movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. This was the gold standard for him. Yeah. What did you guys think of this movie? Like, did you have any conception of it? Do you remember anything about it very well? Or? So I remembered the existence of a Drew Barrymore movie that was also a teen movie somehow. But like, because Drew Barrymore has been acting for so long, I never really remembered what era that was in. And I specifically remembered the title Never Been Kissed, but had no idea that that movie was of that title. Mm-hmm. The only thing I knew about this movie, because I didn't see it until two days ago, was I remembered the poster <laughs> of yes. Barrymore looking cute in jeans. Yes, I totally remember Not the in that, you know, white furry thing. No. But cute in jeans. And I remember that I believe it was the Fight Club DVD <laughs> would start as the Never Been Kissed DVD and it would confuse you and you'd be very uh, concerned and then it would transition to the Fight Club DVD menu. Wow. <laughs> Those Fight Club folks, they're pretty twisted. That was what I came in with as, <laughs> as everything about Never Been Kissed. Yeah, that poster is so not the movie, by the way. It's just like, she looks cute. It's she looks like, it looks so like a yeah. magazine picture. Oh, yeah. It's like not, she's not even character. Really. I remember no. the poster from Blockbuster from just seeing it on the shelf forever there. Yeah, so let's start with the title of this movie. Like 10 Things I Hate About You, it is not accurate. She states up front that she has been kissed. Why is this movie called Never Been Kissed? Because she's never been kissed, like, with, like, she's never been in love. That's basically it. She's never been in love. Okay. But yeah, I mean, it's because it was probably a highly marketed title that was like, oh, there's no nothing called Never Been Kissed, and that sounds like a good title. I feel like they were like, we have this title, Never Been Kissed, it's great, like, let's build a story around it, and they did, and they're like, but it's not believable that she's never been kissed, so let's just have her say that she has been kissed, but we're still gonna call it Never Been Kissed, and just explain why she has been kissed up front. It would have been great if, like, say she was just getting out of the only relationship she's ever had, like, maybe as soon as graduating, she was with a guy, then we open the movie... And he's, like, not a good guy. And they break up, and she realizes, you know, I was never really in love with this guy, or he was never for me. And that's the only guy that I've been with. And maybe when she does go back to high school, she has a best friend, who I guess would be Lily Sobieski in in this case. Mm -hmm. And maybe she's never been kissed. And then by the end of the movie, she gets her first kiss. So at least somebody in the movie gets their first kiss. And then Drew Barrymore's character gets her first in love kiss. (laughs) Yes, I would approve of the multi-layer kissing. Okay, can we now not say the word kiss any more times in this episode? (laughs) Probably not. So, this movie begins with Drew Barrymore playing Josie Geller, who is a copywriter at a newspaper. Uh, The Chicago Sun-Times. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Owned by Gary Marshall in this movie, or run by Gary Marshall. Immediately, we meet Octavia Spencer and Molly Shannon, <laughs> who are <laughs> apparently <laughs> Josie's gal pals in this movie. Like, it's, I mean, it's jarring to see Octavia Spencer in any movie that's not like. She lost a lot of weight since then. She and has. She, she's like a curvy woman still, obviously, mm-hmm. like, but like, she lost a lot of weight. I almost didn't recognize her. Yeah, I just, like, had no conception that Octavia Spencer existed before. Right. Before she was starting to win awards. Yeah, that's what was surprising to me, is, like, seeing her, and I thought she was just as good as she's always been, but it was just surprising seeing her. Yeah, and it, so, Molly Shannon is the slutty friend in this, which is a lot of fun. I really had not remembered, I didn't remember the cast, really, of any of these movies besides the main people, 
And so that was, like, the most fun for me was, like, just watching it and seeing, like, oh, my God, like, Anna Paquin, Molly Shannon. James Franco's in this. <laughs> yeah, this is... John C. Riley yeah. is in this. Yeah, this is James Franco's first role as well. So what did you guys think about this movie now? I <laughs> didn't hate it in the way I hated She's All That, but I hated it in the way that I was so bored. And I also thought it was problematic and <laughs> not funny at all. And I really couldn't wait for it to be over. More so than being, like, completely offended by every frame. <laughs> <laughs> Only every other frame really pissed you off. <laughs> it was completely forgettable. Honestly, I took some notes because otherwise I probably would forget about the movie completely. Seth? Yeah, this one I took a lot more notes on just to try to remind myself of what was happening. I, I was of a similar polarity to Becky where, like, I'm less specifically offended by everything about this movie and more just surprised that something with so many charming, hilarious actors in it would be so humorless. I just did not at any moment, like, laugh out loud for any reason. And it's not, like, aiming to be the silliest movie ever, but kind of all of the things that try to be jokes just really did not land for me yeah. at all. This is the movie of these three that I had the least preconception of. I know I saw each of these movies once and I never saw them again. So, and I remembered like, kind of being like, oh, she's all that is cheesy. And 10 Things I Hate About You, I think, is like a little wittier. And then this one, I was just like, I don't know what I'm going to think about that. I don't even remember. Like, I remembered the basic plot. And so I found it more fun than I thought. Like, I thought the spirit of this one was really kind of goofy and more spoof-like. Like, you said that you thought 10 Things I Hate About You was like that. I felt like this was much more of a broad, broad comedy. And also, like, it as a high school movie, it's kind of not really a high school movie because she's not actually a teenager. So it kind of treads in there, but it also has, like, workplace comedy. And it always stood out to me as, like, not really a teen movie, but while also, like, doing a lot of the things that these other movies do. Mm -hmm. So, at least this movie, like, Drew Barrymore doesn't look particularly good when... First, when, even when she's a copywriter, I mean, she's, like, she's still Drew Barrymore, but she's... Like, her makeup is... Frumpy. Pr pr pretty, yeah. Yeah. So, she actually doesn't look like she would be, like, instantly hot. When they go back to high school, when she was Josie Grossy, like, they actually put makeup on her that make her look, like, un unappealing. Mm -hmm. Was the... I wrote down that there was a scene that reminded me that white lipstick used to be a thing. I wrote down white lipstick, and I was just like, white lipstick, question mark, question mark, yeah. question mark. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't that when she's wearing all white, and it's the feather boa? Yeah, her first outfit. Yes. yes. She definitely looked frumpy. They achieved that, at least. There was at least that effort. I'm a little confused about what they're going for in the costuming of this movie once she tries to become... Like, I think what they're going for is that she's trying to dress like a popular girl but failing. Yeah, she's not... She, I think she's not dressing like she would if she were popular in the 80s or the 90s or whatever, 80s. 90s. Um, well, the 99, so yeah, ninety early 90s. But she's trying to dress like a current day popular high schooler... Were people wearing that? No, <laughs> like, well, well, I mean... In movies, yeah, sometimes they did wear that. But I feel like this movie is, like, trying to make her look ridiculous. But I feel like we needed, like, a shopping scene or something where yeah. she's, like... Or, like, Molly Shannon takes her and, like, is, like, ooh, like, of course, this is the hottest thing, this white feather boa. Like, 
this movie, like, I needed to know, like, where she got her ideas from. Yeah, I needed more lead up to her makeover and her first day of school. Like, I needed there to be, like, some sort of makeover process where, where she's thinking, this is what I'm going to look like. Like, I'm going to be this kind of girl and change. You know what? I needed that montage or at least like a scene with molly shannon and like i almost like it i almost liken it to science fiction where you (laughs) need to like set the rules of the world so you can then understand where these characters are being taken in their journey Mm, yeah and i feel like it didn't really do that for her character it set the rules of kissing and that saying never (laughs) kiss actually means you have right it set those rules on a lie and a falsehood (laughs) so i mean we should maybe set up the plot of this movie because it is bonkers. It's totally nuts. So she's a copywriter. She wants to be a real reporter. They won't let her because she's basically a woman and, like, mousy. It's really important that you be gorgeous if you're going to be a reporter for a paper. So at some point, like, her scary boss, Gary Marshall... Scary Marshall. (laughs) It's his idea. He just, like, is like, teenagers, let's do a story on them. Teenagers. (laughs) Like, yeah, that's the story. They sent her back to high school to like go undercover, but it's not like like in Twenty One Jump Street, which I keep referencing because it's great. (laughs) But like, they have a plan. We need to like go get the drug dealers, or like, you know what I mean? Like, there's a reason for them being there. And this like does it. He's just like go find a story. (laughs) Hang hang out at a high school. (laughs) Like, for weeks and weeks. Like, who knows how long she was there? It feels like a year. Why would you send someone back and just keep paying them to, like, not be in the office working? Like, what story are you trying to uncover? In addition to, like, I don't know what, like, the legal consequences of this are, but they don't seem good. That's the thing. Like, I feel like this is one of the biggest issues of this movie, just in terms of pure believability, not necessarily problematicness. (laughs) Um, Just the fact of Drew Barrymore's character masquerading as a high schooler, that could not exist now in a movie. Like, you could not frame it that way, even on that level. But then the way that the romance plot of this movie is framed... Well, there are two romances involving her, and they are both wrong. Yes, they are. (laughs) In different ways. (laughs) So, yeah, so she... First of all, like, she was dumped in her actual high school or, like, they played a joke on her where she they, like, asked her to the prom and she, because she doesn't have telekinesis, she didn't kill everyone. <laughs> she just became sad about it. Oh, because, uh, yeah, they said, will you go to the prom with me? And then they, like, st- stood her up or something, Which right? they have, like, Madonna's, like, a prayer playing during that scene, which I felt was weird because, like, she didn't go to prom in the 80s. All like, of the 80s references in this movie just don't work and are weirdly drawn again it's like with what you were saying chris earlier about her makeup and everything it's very hodgepodge yeah and i felt like it was like kind of trying to do romeo and michelle a little bit but just not nearly as skillfully anyway so at first she kind of flirts with this guy who looks a lot like the guy the popular guy who dumped her and he is trying to make the word Rufus to be cool. Like, that's so Rufus, which I was kind of amused by. Anyway, he's, what, 17, maybe 18. And she oddly, like, kind of, like, she seems into him. Like, she's not, like, really pursuing him, but she doesn't also say, like, she doesn't try and avoid him. She kind of is into it. And it's like, you know that you're 25 and that this boy is hitting on you. Like, you should probably put some distance between you. 
Then she starts flirting with her teacher, who is mm, 30-ish, maybe like late 20s, played by Michael Verton. He's also the most boring character. So boring. But he's dreamy. He's the most, like, basic, handsome. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) So he blatantly flirts with her in a way that is, like, you would definitely get some calls from parents if you did that. (laughs) If she had parents that (laughs) knew and cared. Right. right. (laughs) So... I don't know how to talk about this movie. (laughs) So at one scene, I mean, they're flirting throughout the movie. And then in one scene, uh, I forget how they get there, but they're in a Ferris wheel and they're sharing like a seat. And he says something along the lines of like, you're beautiful. It's nice to have someone to talk to. Yeah, same here. Well, all I can tell you is that when you're my age, guys will be lined up around the block for you. You have to say that because you're my teacher. Actually, I shouldn't say that because I'm your teacher. And she's like, you have to say that because you're my teacher. And he's like, you mean, I, like, actually, I shouldn't say that because I'm your teacher. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't, and you shouldn't be sitting next to your student, like, on a romantic Ferris wheel ride. What are you doing? This is so inappropriate. And then, so I, of course, wrote that line down. But then it turned out that was a line in the trailer. Yeah. They used that line in the trailer for the movie. Yeah. I mean, this movie, (laughs) (laughs) this barely makes a thing out of the fact that he's her teacher. Like, that's the most, like, lip service they pay to, like, oh, yeah, I probably shouldn't hit on you because I'm your teacher. But it's not, like, because... I could get arrested because, like, this is statutory rape. It's just like, eh, you know, probably shouldn't. <laughs> so, yeah, John C. Riley and Molly Shannon work with her, but there are kind of those workplace moments that you talk about. And one of them is Molly Shannon sexually harassing the fuck out of John C. Riley. Oh, yeah. And it totally works. <laughs> <laughs> and they, like, insta hook up with each Ooh. other. And I'm like, again, it's, it's, if if this were a movie made in the era of a super bad or something like that, leaning into something like that would be done in a much raunchier way and definitely played for more laughs. Um, but here, this movie poses all of this in such a sweet kind of non-raunchy way, or at least attempts to, that it was just very jarring and surprising to me. I really want, like, a sequel to this movie to be just, like, all the lawsuits that came out of this movie. Because <laughs> everyone could sue for, like, multiple things in this movie. Oh, we didn't even mention that David Arquette, uh, Drew Barrymore's brother, just decides he doesn't like his adult life, so he's just gonna, like, redo high school and also, it like, sign up and go back to high school. Yes. So, I mean... Yeah. Nobody's paying him to go back to high school. He no, just but... is able to go. <laughs> I mean, it's bonkers like everything else in this movie but (laughs) i found it really engaging when he's like he's like i could be popular just by like eating an entire tub of coleslaw and he's just like it's funny that like a guy who's a loser outside of high school as an adult like instantly goes back to high school and it's like oh yeah all this totally works and makes me popular because being an idiot is popularity in high school well and of course like the same thing ends up happening with uh drew barrymore's character josie where like she goes back to high school and for some reason they have a prom theme what is the prom theme that like gets oh my ruined? god millennium that's oh. the first one the that, one like, that falls through. the one that they pick 
that Josie picks, Josie and I don't know with, why okay. they picked her to pick it. This happens out of nowhere. They, like, ask if anyone has any ideas for a prom. And she, like, apropos of nothing, comes up with a totally new prom theme and becomes the most popular girl in school. But, but she-, she does it at during sex ed class. Like, it's like sex ed class decides the theme of the prom in this moment. And it's also just one guy says, why don't we ask Josie? Why her? I was so confused. I was like, did I yeah, miss something? Why she's smart? I because she's the only adult in the room. <laughs> um, she they pick meant for each other. Famous couples throughout history. That's and I is. posit that that is the dumbest prom theme <laughs> for two reasons. One is, what if you don't have a date? Um, you like it's called meant for each other. Famous that would couples. never happen in a teen movie. And then also, you're making prom into a costume party, <laughs> right? <laughs> like what? <laughs> That's, like, good for, like, a Halloween dance theme, not, like... It was awful. It was just awful. Yeah. Yeah, it was all really bad. And, of course, it's, like, it's it's just bonkers that her popularity is immediate and not at all really earned well, by anything she does she as a character. Well, it's because she eats a pot brownie. That's also... Yeah, well, it, this is another thing I learned from this film, is if you put your... T- like, if you literally take one bite of a pot brownie, you immediately become incredibly stoned. At least that's something that happens to people, like, when they, like, don't know what they're eating, or, like, it can be, like, a small amount where it just, like, happens to be really concentrated. So, like, that was much more believable than, like, Julia Stiles getting drunk, like, and I thought it was a lot funnier that she just, like... Well, but that would happen after, like, 45 minutes. It would take a long time to kick in. Yeah. (laughs) And also, she just kind of acts like she's mostly drunk. Yeah. <laughs> the, the idea of her getting high doesn't bother me. Just, I didn't think it was funny. Yeah. She didn't do anything yeah. that was funny. Um, I feel like this movie suffers from She's All That syndrome with Lily Sobieski's character. Yes. Because they might dress up Drew Barrymore, uh, Josie Grossi, to be, like, unattractive in high school. But Lily Sobieski is fucking gorgeous, plays a nerd, and just has braids and glasses. And it's, no, I wrote it down because she keeps adding more accessories as the movie goes on. So she'll have, like, she'll be wearing, like, one accessory more in every scene she's in. And, like, suddenly she'll have, like, oversized glasses. And then in the next scene, she'll have, like, a Gilligan's Island skipper hat. (laughs) It it just keeps piling on. Yeah, I I thought of the movies. This was the one that did the best job of making geeks seem like geeks. Like, even her, like, she's very pretty, but... At least her personality was geeky. Like, she was in the math club. Like, she dresses as, what, like a molecule for the prom? Right. So, at least I bought that, like, someone with that personality would be kind of an outcast, whereas, like, it's not just that she wears glasses. For the record, like, I didn't like her character. I, like, thought her character was kind of a bitch. Like, really grumpy and, like, pissed off and... Like, uh, Lily Sobieski? Yeah, yeah, and I didn't like her character. I didn't like anybody's character, Honestly, like, I just didn't like them. I wasn't rooting for many people. And, like, I guess you're supposed to like the nerds because they're, like, going against the grain and Josie's friends with them. But I was like, I don't like them. I wouldn't want to hang out with them either. I liked her fine. I mean, yeah. This, I feel like like she's the most grounded character in this movie. I say with something in my voice that, hopes, <laughs> that I hope conveys that it's not a very grounded movie. But like this movie has like kind of a sense of like the popular girls are all like dancing in sync at like the club where Drew Barrymore gets high. And so, like, I felt like this had like a sense of like not taking any of this very seriously. And the plot is obviously not taking itself very seriously 
until it occasionally does. But I, I don't know. Like, it had a fun spirit to it where, I, like, I agree. I don't think anything in it is, like, laugh-out-loud hilarious, nor does the story really make sense. But it just had this breeziness where I could easily forgive it for that, where, like... And there wasn't... I mean, <laughs> the funny thing about this movie is that it has by far the most problematic plot, and yet I'm the least bothered by this plot. <laughs> because, I don't know, maybe because it's not misogynist, it's just pedophile? <laughs> I don't know if it's misogynist, but like just story-wise, I have a lot of problems with this movie. And the weird... Did I miss something? Why are we ending this movie in a baseball diamond? <laughs> like, I yeah, where totally, does that come from? Where did that come from? That came from a different movie. <laughs> no, I don't know that for sure, but it just feels like a totally different yeah, movie. Yeah. She's even it. dressed like a different person. She is. She's complete, she's just like Drew Barrymore on the poster. <laughs> yeah. I feel like they had they shot that scene for something else, and I'm like, shit, what are we going to do with this poster in this last scene? <laughs> We've got an ending. That's it. She's she basically tells her teacher she's like found out to be an adult. She's like, if you want to be with me, meet me at the baseball diamond in I forget what was it Dodger Stadium. It was like a big stadium, uh, and and like they're gonna televise it. And if you really love me, you want to be with me, you'll meet me there. So she's like there, and it's like full crowd, and everyone's waiting to see if she he, he shows up, and it's like, oh no, he's running late. Or, like, he's not going to come, and then he comes, and then they kiss. Like, it was just, like, such a weird... I wanted the cops to then come and, like, arrest him. Like, it, So, not only, like, she lies to him about being a teenager, which is weird, but maybe forgivable. But then she, like, kind of writes a story about how he is hitting on her, so makes her him seem, then, like an actual pedophile, which, of course, has no consequences, but, like... And then she's like, "Oh, and if you want to, if you want me, come find me." And then he's supposed to make this big romantic gesture again. It was such a weird ending. They really didn't know how to end this story. Yeah, it's like an ending that ignores the entire conflict that happened before. It's like it's as if like he was the one who had done something wrong, and he needed to make it up to her. But that's not it. Like she needs to like show up for him and be like, "Yeah, sorry, I pretended to be jailbait." and almost got you fired, or would in the real world, at least. Why weren't they at, like, a high school baseball diamond, at least? Like, why did they have to be at, like, a professional baseball? Like, did I miss something? I guess the brother's into baseball, but I feel like I missed something of why they're, like, at, like, Dodger Stadium or no, wherever again, they were. No, again, it really just feels like <laughs> they shot an ending to a movie and then started making another movie and just decided to tack that on. It's so, so weird. So we have Drew Barrymore kind of being a pedophile with a 17-year-old boy. We have the teacher accidentally not being a pedophile, but thinking he is a pedophile. Intending to be one. <laughs> like, that would work if there was a scene between them where she seemed really mature, and there was, like, more conflict, like, oh, like, I can't believe I'm attracted to you. You seem so wise. I feel like they kind of gesture toward that, but she doesn't say anything, like particularly She just has a good vocabulary, is that it? Or she corrects people's grammar? (laughs) But, like, that is something a high school girl would do. Well, but it's also, like, the movie veers between kind of the -the over-the-top plot change moments and, like, this really expository dialogue. So, like, on that Ferris wheel scene, yeah, they, like, talk through 
him being attracted to her and finding himself being attracted to her, but you don't see the basis of that in their relationship at all. You don't see her seeming worldly beyond her years, really. She's always doing the act. No, in fact, like, their relationship is very teacher-student because you like he likes her because she's, like, the smart girl in class. Yes. That's a real thing that happens, yes. but not, hopefully not to this extent. Right. Then there's the plot where her brother comes to school and pretends that they used to date. It's weird. It's so weird. So not only do we have this, like, pedophile angle, but we also have an incest angle happening at the same time with different people. And he is more than willing to do this. I know he wants to do it as a favor, but she's not just like, ew, gross, you're my brother. Why are you telling people we dated? Like, they don't even have that conversation where he's like, people don't know we're related. You know, like, they, they needed to have the conversation where at least one of them was, like, gross. Right, out. like, the exposition <laughs> they should have given, they did not give. I feel like there are a bunch of the scenes of this movie where, like, people were, like, had the conversation, like, wow, this is really wrong. And they're like, eh, we don't need that. It's true. It's true. So... Is Drew Barrymore a good actress? Not just in this, but in general. Do I like her? Have I ever really known if I like her? Is she, if she's a good actress? I feel like this is a question only you can answer for yes, yourself. Yes, it is specifically Becky. poised to Becky. Well, how about you guys? Do you think she's a good actress? Yes. And I think she's charming in this. Do you think she's just charming or do you think she's actually like a good actress? I think she will match the material she's given. I don't think she's a caliber of actress where she'll, like, elevate anything you throw in front of her. Um, But when the material's good, I think she rises to meet it. And I don't think the material in this is great, but I think she does her charming thing. I don't feel like her performance is anything that, like, stood out to me really one way or another in this. I am struggling to think of a movie where Drew Barrymore acted differently than she did in this movie. Like, she very much is always playing Drew Barrymore, and she's always kind of called upon to be sweet and a little, like a hint of ditzy, but like warm and likable. And that, I think, has always worked for me. Like, I don't think I've ever been like, oh, Drew Barrymore in this movie. But I've also, yeah, never been like blown away by anything she's doing. Like, I don't think I've ever seen her give a performance where I'm like, wow, that's Drew Barrymore. Like, she's really showing me New colors. I think she won, I don't know if it was an Emmy or Golden Globe, for Grey Gardens, which is like an HBO miniseries. Um, and I'd like to see that now. Right, I didn't see that either. Because she won. I don't know if it was just because she's, so- she's a star, you know, and I don't know what the competition was like that year. But I don't know if I've ever thought she was a good actress. She seems really likable. But I'm, I've, I struggled with this movie. I thought she was pretty bad. But I don't know if she's ever good. But I don't know if she's ever terrible. It was just a very strange, like, how do I really feel about her? It's a weird character. I mean, she's asked to do a lot in this movie because she has to play, like, the copywriter. Then she has to play, like, the old version of Josie. And then the new, like, like, faux popular or thinks she's popular, but she's still dorky. And then the actual popular. And then the romantic interest. So she has a lot to do in this movie. I think she's best as just like in the Ferris wheel, like being like having chemistry with a cute guy. Like, I think that's really her mm-hmm. mode for sure. I have to go back to the journalism plot. Cause it's just so weird mm-hmm. that like when she finally does get a story, it's that like kids are hanging out in the parking lot and he's like, you have to get on that. It's just like, what is this newspaper? Like the headline is, 
what, like, high school is high school? Like, <laughs> what are you trying to find out that kids are hanging out? Like, yeah. this really needed, like, some kind of goal for her to have other than just, like, I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, I feel like loitering is really a central plot device in all aspects of this movie. It's just, just hang around children at different locations and see what develops. So she would be, like, would she be arrested for this? Like, you can't do that. Well, what do you mean? You can't go and pretend to be a high school student. I knew it! You are a loser! You ruined everything! You so do not deserve to be prom queen! Let me tell you something. I don't care about being your stupid prom queen. I'm 25 years old. I'm an undercover reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times, and I have been beating my brains out trying to impress you people. Like, I couldn't just show up at high school and be like, I'm going to hang around. I guess it's fraud, right? Fraud? They would well, charge I think you fraud with? has to be, like, money involved. No, like, no. If you're pretending to be something you're not, I guess it's age fraud. <laughs> I mean, I commit well, that like, all the time. You wouldn't even be able to register at that school. Like, you wouldn't... Well, presumably she, like, doctored some stuff. I don't know. They should have also had, like, Molly Shannon doing that or something. She'd probably be arrested, but the paper would pay for her legal bills because it was a work assignment. (laughs) We're getting real down in the nitty-gritty. In our gritty reboot. (laughs) It's weird because it's not, like, I don't know what crime it is, but it seems like a crime. Like, it It seems seems like something you would definitely get in trouble for. Any lawyers out in the audience, please, tell us (laughs) from a legalistic perspective alone... Yeah, I think that, like, we definitely had a super senior in my high school. Somebody who, like, failed senior year and then had to repeat it. Mm -hmm. So he was turning 19, I think, senior year. But I think if he had failed again, he would have to go get his GED. I think you can only be so old. Right. Like, it's definitely not that, like, they let her in. Like, she's just pretending. They needed a little bit more work on the screenplay, (laughs) is, I guess, my overall thought. So there's, like, a whole Shakespeare element with this, too. That's bizarre. And this isn't based off anything like a literary classic, is it? Not literally, no. It's So in the thing they're studying as you like it, so there's a vibe of, like, he's not who he's saying he's supposed to be and she isn't either. Um, but it's not, like, actually the plot of that. Yeah. But that does... That's a very Shakespearean thing, is, like, trickery and deceit and, like... Mistaken it, identity. Yeah, disguises. And, yeah. And it always ends in love, which works in, in Shakespeare, because that was our 500-year-old plays. <laughs> and it's, like, its own genre, you know? It's, like, it's not meant to be... Adapted a million ways. Yeah, and I don't think you're supposed to really take those literally. Like, that ever really happened. It's just, like, it's a heightened world that he creates, and that's how it goes. I found it very disconcerting how many of these movies thought to not update that really at all, and just went for, yep, that again, but in 1999. Yeah, and I mean, I liken it to the way that this movie can't figure out where it should drop exposition and where it should have the characters actually doing things in the present and relating to each other. It's strange to me how many of these movies there were, how directly Shakespearean they were, and again, like how little effort there was to actually reimagine any of these tropes. You know, because what works in Shakespeare is the human drama of what's happening. That's why it's funny. It's not because he says forsooth and has the chorus come in 
almost like when fundamentalists like take one tiny aspect or a couple verses of the Bible or something and make that into their entire philosophy. It's like they don't know what are the good essential elements that they should bring through. So I just think they fail as adaptations, even beyond like not quite working as comedies. Right. So this was like a big thing in the 90s. Cruel Intentions was based on Dangerous Liaisons. There was O in 2001, also with Julia Stiles, which was based on Othello. Whatever It Takes in 2000, starring Marla Sokoloff and Shane West. That was Midsummer Night's Dream. That was Cyrano de Bergerac. Oh. Oh. One of these was Midsummer Night's Dream. Get Over It was a Midsummer Night's Dream. (laughs) (laughs) That was uh, Kristen Dunst. Yeah. And then, like, later in the 2000s, there was She's the Man, which was based on something classic. Uh, Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night. And Easy A, which was, took its inspiration from The Scarlet Letter. So this was a, this has been a big thing in teen movies, like, for some reason, like. Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. (laughs) Baz Luhrmann's, yeah. Which at least, like, I mean, I guess all these characters were teenagers at that time, but teenagers were basically adults back then. Like, young adults. Mm-hmm. Like, it's the equivalent of people in their 20s, so it's kind of weird to go back and set it in high school. So I think, like, when I was thinking about why these movies don't 100% hold up, at least. At least. <laughs> at least. <laughs> at very least. Because, like, Clueless really set the mold for this and did it so well. But it, I think it's because it's based on Emma by Jane Austen, which is a book about a woman, written by a woman. So it doesn't feel creepy because, like, this is a female protagonist and she's already she was already given, like, agency in that. Whereas... Like, in, like, all of these other stories are about men basically manipulating women, which feels, like, fun in the context of Shakespeare, because women were basically property back then to be, like, traded and bartered. But, like, you can't really just, like, snap that into the 20th century. Yeah, I agree. So to kind of wrap this up, I just wanted to put this in the context of teen movies in general. Like, the John Hughes movies were mostly about relatable teens. Like, there was a heightened element to them, and a lot of them were upper middle class. But Pretty in Pink, like, and Breakfast Club had, like, some poor kids as well. And in general, their problems were, like, pretty teen scale. The 90s teens are not relatable. Like, Mm-mm. they're very aspirational. They're kind of, like, impossibly articulate, rich gorgeous even like the geeks are pretty gorgeous they're all popular and they were basically played by adults and they were basically the characters were adults who just happened to be in high school but there's no pretense of like actually going through high school things in these movies like if they're in class it's like a throwaway like it, it never feels like they're actually in, in it's high always school. about the social aspect of high school not about like actually getting good grades i mean that's less cinematic right and that kind <laughs> of social high school high school aspect really only looks like a college social aspect mm-hmm. in most cases yeah like these characters are never vulnerable or awkward like even when they're supposed to be like leany you know but she's like she's still like pretty self-confident like she's not actually hurting that much in there and so i don't know i just i found it really interesting that this was our model of teenage-ness when we were growing up that, like, it was this, like, sort of, like, sexy, cool, like, everybody's having a good time, nobody's taking anything seriously, like, like I wonder if that just, like, had a weird, like, psychological effect on us of, like, what we thought, like, high school was supposed to be, or, like, if it created, like, this disconnect between us seeing our high school lives as falling short because, like, this depiction of teen life was so incredible. Absolutely. I mean, it was kind of horrifying to see such commonality to the messages that these movies sent about what romance means, about what it means 
means to have friends in high school, what it means to be popular. And in every single case, in definitely in different ways and to different degrees of badness, but really each of these movies teach you to mold and change and shape yourself in order to find acceptance, in order to find love, and that if you don't do that, you won't get or deserve those things. Or worse, to mold and shape other people, like, against their will. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, that kind of manipulation is just, even just more so than, like, being patriarchal or, like, pickup artisty. It's just a really kind of self-centered, shitty way to make your relationships happen <laughs> in the world, like, in the actual world that we live in. Well, I don't know about anyone else, but when I, I was in high school when these movies came out. I was in high school in 1999, and I could tell then that these movies had nothing to do with my high school experience. So I kind of, I rejected most of these movies. I don't think I saw barely any of them. And if I did, I mostly was like, yeah, that's not my high school experience. But I wonder about kids who are not in high school, who are younger and in elementary school or junior high and what they thought high school needed to be when they were entering it. So I feel like maybe younger kids watching these movies probably were like, oh, I've got to do this or be this kind of way when I enter high school. And I feel like that maybe was a bad thing. Right. So like one thing that millennials are accused of often is being like perpetual teenagers And I just find it interesting that, like, this is sort of the generation that grew up with these movies where, like, these looked like adults who just, like, happened to be doing teenage things. They're, like, fully formed people. They don't really have any flaws. They all have these impossible standards. Like, they have money and, you know, they're really attractive. They were always sort of, like, adults pretending to be teenagers. That's what they always kind of felt like. And so I I just find it interesting that, like that kind of, I feel like, soaks into, like, how people, like, why maybe we're, our generation is a little bit more reluctant to, like, grow up and... Well, I would say that's more a result of the political and economic and social conditions of our time, but our culture, of course, always reflects that. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think it, it, all these things kind of interplay. But again, I mean, I I think the, the 80s movies characters and that vision of teen movies is inherently tied into Reaganomics and to a society that was becoming more stratified between the rich and the poor, where, like, to the extent that a Molly Ringwald, like the Harry Dean Stanton and Molly Ringwald, she's literally from the wrong side of the tracks um and to that same degree i think these 90s movies are reflecting like kind of the politics of that continuing but also you know just such a hodgepodge of as we were saying like grunge culture of other kinds of movies that had come before that these then referenced and even having a tr- like throwing in Shakespeare as kind of its own like side trope and reference is kind of a very postmodern like 90s way to tell a teen story. Um, but of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that these were good stories well told. Yeah, so it, if you had to pick one of these movies to show kids today, even, I don't know, like which which one do you think holds up the most, or which one would you watch again? Ten things I hate about you. Heath Ledger. Can I, can I choose D? <laughs> what's, what's that one? What's door number That's four? Not another teen movie. <laughs> I would. Probably I would recommend not another teen movie. Yeah, I would probably oh do no! That. I I found all of these more entertaining and more consistent than this. Like that is like a lot of misses. I would no, I say it. I would say never been kissed 
had the most charm for me. And though legally it certainly is the most overtly problematic and prosecutable offense. <laughs> um yeah, it at least it, it at least had some enjoyability to watching it and did not like morally repel me. If I had to show kids today a movie that exemplified the 1999 teen movie, it would be She's All That. Yeah. I think that that's the one that I would choose to watch again, just because it really is steeped in all that. And I'm, I don't think it's like a great movie or even necessarily a good movie, but it like, because I hadn't seen it in so long, I really did enjoy watching it and being like, oh yeah, like all this stuff. Like for me, it was the mo- it yeah, it spoke the most to like what I remember about the nineties and like the epitome of a teen movie. So I guess I had the most fun with that at least. I just wanted to recommend a few mostly modern day movies that I feel like are the complete antithesis of these movies where they actually, you know, the Schindler's qu- list. <laughs> Eyes wide shut. <laughs> like we can debate like, you know, the quality of these movies, but I feel like they really captured what high schoolers behaved, sounded like, looked like. And those are Election from 1999, um, 21 Jump Street, which I've talked about a lot in this podcast. It, that just came out last year, Super 8, Super Bad. This is Spider-Man Homecoming movie that just came out recently. I think that was 2017. Mm -hmm. Freaks and Geeks, even My So-Called Life, if you want something a little bit more like in the past, like early 90s. And American Vandal is a TV series that came out on (laughs) Netflix. It's one of the best TV series I've ever seen. It is fantastic. It's, it's a it's a satire parody of like making a murder and those types of shows, but it's also one of the best high school depictions that I've I honestly ever seen. Like even though I didn't really have social media or anything like that when I was in high school, I feel like seeing the high schoolers that are mostly the teenagers are teenagers in American Vandal and they're all great actors. And but they really, all kind of start as the archetypal types of teenagers that they are, you know, and there are the same kinds of cliques and in-groups and out-groups. But I really like Becky. I totally agree. I feel like the character work and the writing in American Vandal is some of the most layered characters, like even in the, even on the side of the bullies and the bad kids in the school. Yeah, I really, really recommend out of everything, American Vandal is probably one of the best high school works of fiction that I've seen in a really long time that really capture what high school's like. And also it's absolutely fucking hilarious. Laugh out loud funny. Yeah, I think I have to say, like, the representation of teens have come a long way since the 90s. Like, a really long way. Like, even the most basic teen movie these days, like, isn't like these really no. um like love simon just came out and that's a, like a gay story and it has a lot to do with never been kissed in terms of like the romantic plot but none of the like weird none of the bad stuff <laughs> but like you just like they're just really believable characters i mean they're still like you know movie characters but they're not like super rich living in southern california going to buffy's high school like mm-hmm. which is like the most beautiful high school other than the one in hogwarts <laughs> they're yeah. not constantly introduced by rap verses <laughs> but if Just i'm spontaneously around them if i'm going to recommend a teen movie lately i would say ladybird is the one that i think oh, most accurately represents like ladybird. real high school people And that's all the sexy Shakespeare we have time for in this episode of when we were young on the next episode of the podcast We are going further back on the podcast than we have ever gone before to an adventure 65 million years in the making. (laughs) Welcome to Jurassic Park. (laughs) 
and so on. It's Bim. (laughs) (laughs) The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this audiophonic experience, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review of five stars or more. You can suggest future episodes of the podcast on our Facebook page, on iTunes, on our Twitter feed, or anywhere else you so choose. I have been Seth Pearson. I'm Chris, the big man on campus. And I was just a bet! <laughs> Between two girls, which one we gonna pick? pick. I'd rather pick Laney, cause Taylor be talking shh. She thinks she's all of that with everything in between. But who's about to be prom queen? Laney. Well, Taylor used to be the thing, but now she's not. Laney's going for prom queen and Taylor's hot. But we don't give a damn about Taylor Vaughn, cause Taylor's fading out and Laney's on.